This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. The gang partially gathered. Jeff Simpson out with the gombu or something. He's being very... Uh, it's probably just the flu. Yeah. He's, he's being if, very quiet if you about watch, it. If you watch the news, the CDC is very concerned. The flu is it's taking over, and it's apparently worse than everybody thought. Yeah. But, hey, that's why you get a flu shot. See, when you're my age, you get a flu shot. This flu shot isn't working so well. Oh, mine worked great so far. Knock on Formica. Yeah, whatever this is. (laughs) Got a great show for you today. Uh, Boy, oh boy, good news. The president is healthy. Really healthy. Or or is he? Oh, come on. His doctor said he's healthy. And in fact, we'll not only be able to easily serve out this term, but another term if he is so elected. Hmm. And... He even uh, is mentally strong, took a A cognitive test test and aced it, 30 for 30 out of a cognitive test. That's good. I guess a normal score would be 26 out of 30, and our president aced it. That's tremendous. See, that's great news. One of the greatest scores ever. The greatest score you will ever see of all time in history. Now, you were an EMT. Yes. Some of these terms you may have better idea of. So uh, his so he's seventy one. Yep. and seven months. They're saying six foot three. We'll talk about that. Well, but oh, when you age, you shrink a little bit. Mm, uh, Two thirty nine yeah. for his weight. Yeah, uh, body mass index at twenty nine point nine, which makes him overweight. He's overweight. By the, the way, BMI like the majority of Americans by one pound. Uh, his stolic blood pressure mm-hmm. one twenty two. He's at risk. It's mm-hmm. so a little bit of high on the blood pressure. Well, one twenty two normal normal's one twenty. There you go. Uh, the uh, diastolic, diastolic blood pressure is at seventy four. Normal, yeah. Well, so eighties, so one twenty over eighty is a normal BP. One twenty two over seventy four, pretty good BP. Resting heart rates is sixty eight. Ah, oh, that's, that's normal. That's great. Total cholesterol is two twenty three, which I say is borderline. Yeah, no, he says his heart health is fine. It's great. HDL, good uh, cholesterol at sixty seven, which is normal. Bad cholesterol, way, borderline, which is amazing. Yeah. Considering yeah. his diet. My question was asked. And he he said, should be dead. He goes, some reporter's like, he eats McDonald's and Kentucky Fried no, he's Chicken. Healthy. How does he? And he's genetics. Fit. Genetics. He's got gray genes. A lot of cholesterol is genetics. Oh, yeah. How your body yeah. deals with oh, it. Oh, yeah. So His heart health, the doctor said, he just has great genes. He's just, yeah. it's the only way to explain it. Uh, fasting blood glucose. Yeah. So, normal. He's killing it. He takes a daily multivitamin, Crestor, for trying to lower his cholesterol. Yeah. Uh, he takes a skin, he uses a skin cream to treat rosacea. Sure. And he's taking Propecia to prevent hair loss. See? There you go. Yeah. It's all there. Healthy. Really. I mean, honestly, how many of us would like to go through a, the exact same health scan and then have a, your doctor stand up in front of journalists for one hour? And answer questions. After, he came out, by the way, with the Propecia. He did. I mean, he's... he's. After the news, I'll bring up some of the questions people have. Okay. <laughs> it's really interesting. But then he took the cognitive test. Now everyone, yeah, but what about his mental health? Yeah. Well... That's not what that doctor does. No. And honestly, uh, the doctor said, I don't see a need to do that. Right. Don't see the need. Now... 
He is reactive, mm-hmm. and some of it's probably he's playing people. Yeah. Yeah, and some of it he's bored. Or he's trying to do things he thinks that his hardcore supporters will enjoy. Yeah. It's all. It's all. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. He's perfect. <laughs> and then and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, boy, she's fighting like crazy over what he said, what he didn't say. Yeah. That's turned into a crazy game. Yeah. It's still a, it's, a swear word. It's just it dis- a different swear but word. But which one? Yeah. Does, it, but then in the it, end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, because they're both, they're not very like, he's not saying something positive. Mm-mm. It all has the same sentiment. And it's about now the big movement of uh, immigration. It's about kind of merit-based immigration. Yeah. So if you have something to bring America, mm-hmm. we let you in. With the idea that anybody can bring good things to America, except there are some countries that hmm. might be able to bring more people who have better educations, better insight, I mean, better, you know, better history of work, better than other countries. And Canada has a merit-based system yeah. to become a citizen of Canada, to enter Canada. So. Right. So I mean, there's maybe some precedents fine. in the world for this. It's just not something we've done here. Well, it, then I guess what it would say is if you're a refugee, uh, so what was your GPA? Yeah. And you're fleeing war. Yeah. Mm. So have you did taken, you fail, you, did you take the ACT? What were your ACT scores? Oh, sorry. We were just trying to stay alive. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't work for us. We have... Or, or you're an engineer, and we have yeah. plenty of engineers right now. Yeah. We need, yeah. We need more doctors. Oh, dear. <laughs> we need more PAs, more nurses. <sighs> anyway, uh, just know you've got a healthy president who can now tackle the tough issues of immigration and passing some pay bill to make sure the government doesn't shut down. Right. So it's all good. And we'll talk about more. Again, there's questions. There's other questions. Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? A survey by the Knight Foundation in partnership with Gallup found that 84% of American adults believe the news media is critical or very important to our democracy, but only 28% believe the news media is doing very well or well at supporting our democracy. Hmm. So 84% believe they are vital. 15% of the country thinks... 28% think they're not doing so hot when it comes to actually following through with yeah. supporting our democracy. Yeah. This uh, the Politico summarizes the findings by saying Americans are so polarized that they can't even agree on the definition of fake news. Democrats, the study found, hew more closely to the original definition of the phrase that emerged after, tw- after the 2016 election, referring to fabricated news stories that are intended to deceive. Yeah. Right. Republicans, on the other hand, are more likely to have all have also adopted the meaning that President Trump has ascribed to the term, which he often tags on stories that he doesn't like, regardless of whether or not they are factual. So fake news for the president would be anything against the president. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the polar opposites are at. So uh, Senator John McCain on Tuesday called out President Trump for his unrelenting attacks on the press in an op-ed for The Washington Post saying he is aiding dictators worldwide by putting uh, in the cross or the crosshairs on journalists. Mm. Whether Trump knows it or not, McCain wrote in his uh, 
His, his constant cry of fake news directed at reporters and news outlets whose coverage he d- disagrees with is being used by representative regimes or repressive regimes to crack down on the media. Referencing a report by the Committee to Protect Journalists, McCain noted that 21 instances of journals being charged for fake news were recorded in 2017. He went on to slam the Trump administration for condemning violence against journalists abroad while Trump continues his unrelenting attacks on the integrity of American journalists and news outlets. Fellow Arizona Arizona Senator Jeff Flake will speak today on the Senate floor, according to the reports, comparing Trump's approach to dealing with the media to Joseph Stalin. So Arizona's got this like media push on the president yesterday and today. Sure, why that? And now, yeah, up, now but. Stalin's coming into this, and that usually ends poorly. So, yeah, whenever you're invoking Hitler, Stalin's Stalin, pretty extreme. Yeah. So, but I mean, it is it is telling that you use fake news, and then these other governments are now charging people with fake news, yeah, and throwing you in jail for fake news when it's just stuff they disagree with, right? So, yeah, that's kind of what separates us. Used to. Yeah, historically. Now it's becoming a problem. Former White House top strategist Steve Bannon was subpoenaed by special counsel Robert Mueller to testify in front of a grand jury in the course of, an, of the investigation into the meddling of the 2016 election. Uh, the side of the New York Times, though Mueller has used subpoenas in the investigation for previous Trump associates, Bannon is the first of the president's inner circle to have been pulled in. The Times reports that Mueller may be inclined to allow Bannon to avoid the grand jury appearance in favor of being privately questioned by investigators. Bannon also testified before the House Intelligence Committee on Tuesday, who was very angry because Bannon didn't really answer all their questions, and they're mad that Mueller... Well, Bannon seems to be under a gag order from the White House when it comes to Congress. But when he talks to Mueller, go ahead, say what you want. And so Congress is mad because they're not getting the answers, but the Mueller investigation gets all the answers. Oh, sure. The Mueller's get all the things that are good. What's up with that? (laughs) Yesterday, it was announced by the Navy that the commanders of the USS Fitzgerald and the USS John McCain, which both uh, crashed into other ships... That those commanders that were relieved of duty will be charged with negligent homicide. One for ten deaths, one for seven deaths? Yes. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, wow. Usually you don't see the resolution of that, but they're no. making it public because these ships, one ran into a commercial vessel, the other one ran into an oil tanker. But So negligence, major negligence going on here. You have ships with super sophisticated radar, and they ran into another vessel out in the middle of the ocean. Not in the middle of the ocean, but in the ocean. You should be able to avoid an uh, oil yeah. tanker, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you, it's They're not huge. like these are speedboats. Oh. <laughs> you see so. it coming for days. And finally, the founders of New California took an early step towards statehood Monday with the reading of their own Declaration of Independence from California, a state oh, they boy. describe as ungovernable. Oh, they're going to call it, they would call it New California? New California. There'd be like California and New California. Okay. Sure. The solution take, uh, so it's ungovernable is the, what they're saying, the current situation is. Their solution take over most of current day California, including many rural counties, and leave the coastal urban areas to themselves. The current state of California has become governed by a tyranny, the group says, led in part by Vice Chairman uh, Paul Robert Preston, declaring in a document published online, the split w- uh, would run from San Francisco to Los Angeles and in just north of Riverside. So it wouldn't go, the, so the, wow. the current California would remain just the coastal area from San Francisco to L.A., 
just past L.A., just south of L.A.'s Riverside. So in between L.A. and San Diego, yeah. it would stop. San Diego and then the rest of the state, which is all the farmlands and everything, that would all be New California. So basically, California wants the oceans. Yeah. New California well, no, wants I, the hills and I the think mountains. California is not involved. Yeah. And this little group is assuming that everyone else – well, they, they actually have, as it says here, the group organized with a council of county representatives and various committees hopes to model the, their split after the state of West Virginia. Okay. Right. Yeah. So just we're going to separate from you. And what it comes if – I, if you go look at it, probably the voting – of these counties are similar the conservative counties wanting to leave the liberal counties yeah. who dominate because they're the most populous. But it seems right? like you're also going to get uh, a lot of the a lot of big corporations would be on the coastal side. Yep. And then a lot of the actual agrarian farm villages. R- real real America. Kind of, man. Yeah. Real America. Yeah. New Almost California. Middle America. But it's a coastal middle right. America. The group said in a statement citing a decline in its essential basic services, including education, law enforcement, infrastructure, and health care. Okay. New California. So keep that on your radar. New California. Not necessarily happening, but uh, Well, it seems like New California is where we fuel up to get to California. <laughs> yeah, it's like Barstow, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Okay. So back to President Trump's health. He is- Yeah. He's killing it. Let me see. Let me get the healthiest. healthiest, I think he's the healthiest president ever. We'll see this morning. Uh, Six foot three, two hundred thirty-nine pounds. Yeah. Conveniently on the BMI schedule or or BMI scale. Scale. Yeah. Six foot three, two thirty-nine. One pound short of obese. Yeah. One pound short. Yeah. If by the way, by the way, with along with forty percent of the country or whatever the number is. True. But they just, he's just people normal. are just pointing out that on his driver's license in New York City, it says he's six foot two. Yeah. If he was six two, two thirty nine, he's obese. Yeah. But somehow he's seventy one years old and he's gained an inch. Oh yeah. He's six three. Well, he's been stretching more. Is that what it is? It's stretching. He's yeah. And then uh, Sports Illustrated they compared him to pro athletes. Okay, yeah. Who are six foot two. Char- around the same, six Charles two, Barkley. six three, around the same. No, yeah. pro athletes, not guys that have been retired. Oh, you mean reti- yeah? You're not saying retired pro athletes. So like Tim Tebow, right? Yeah, he's he's retired, sort of ish. He was kind of forced out because you know lack yeah. of talent generally. Um, but he's he's fit. He's on TV. You yeah. see him yeah. on on sports programming. Right. He's fit. Right. He is six foot two, two thirty six. Yeah. You put pictures of him and Trump together. No, yeah, he looks. They look a lot alike. Right. Now, is that a good comparison? You have people working out versus someone who's... Well, his is all muscle, and muscle weighs more. Okay. So he looks more fit, but he's got heavier weight on. President Trump has less muscle, right. if any, and so his is just fat. So, so he, he weighs more and looks that, plumpier. Can he be the plumper. same weight and... yes. Mike Trout, out, an outfielder oh, yeah. for the Angels, he's 6'2", awesome. 235. Uh-huh. Yeah. Almost obese. Cam Chancellor, he's a uh, Seahawks safety. He's 6'3", 232. Yeah. Jay Cutler, quarterback for the Dolphins, 6'3", 231. See, they're all nearly obese. My favorite one, <laughs> Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. What's he? He's 6'4", 230. Yeah. So here's, here's pictures. See, that's why he kneels. Next to each other. Yeah. 
But see, that's the difference. Athletes athletes wear all their weight in little muscle packs. Okay. Like a six-pack. So what you're saying is this is not necessarily a fair comparison. No. But none of these guys, by the way, are the president. Right. And none of these guys get to watch as much television as he does. Or eat fried chicken, apparently. He's now, yeah. It's not a fair comparison, but he is. He to me, he's just like a normal American. The other situation is there's photographs during the inaugural, yeah, or just before President Obama and President Trump standing next to each other. Yeah, Obama is six foot one. Right, they're the same height. Well, see, that's the problem. It or, looks or, like they are. Or does Trump slump slouch and Trump's got a Trump slump? That okay. he uses whenever he's with people that he wants to be the same height as. Is that what he does? Yeah. He's taller. So just on a visual look. We're, we're going to tell you there, why you're struggling with this. There be- is a group. Well, on Twitter, people are yeah. trying to start a girtherism. <laughs> I mean, there was birtherism, right? Yeah, now yeah, they're right. like girtherism. Like, this is real. Is he really this way? Is he this height? The rest of it, it's like he eats, he eats poorly. That's yeah, the report. That's he eats poorly and his cholesterol is fine. There's just some questions people have. See, our guest today that we'll be talking about or talking with, yeah. uh, we're going to talk about the fact that whether you're a football fan, mm. whether you're a, a political you know, partisan, you have a tendency to evaluate others through your little spectrum. So if you, for example, uh, during the uh, Obama-McCain election – right. People thought – or the Obama-Romney election. Mm. People thought that Obama, if you were a Democrat, they thought Obama was taller than Mitt Romney, even though Mitt Romney is taller than Obama. Interesting. They thought that – No, is that just like Romney's hair? It's kind of – No. It's because when you're biased, you think people are taller or bigger than they really are. They thought Sarah Palin – was according to this researcher, they thought the the people that responded to their research thought Sarah Palin was taller than Biden. Fifty six percent of the people drew a picture of Sarah Palin in the debate being taller and bigger than Joe Biden. Did they watch the debate? Yeah, you could see there was. That's the problem. Okay, is we're all wired to hmm. to be. We partisans. favor our team. Mm-hmm. In all situations. And so if you want – if people or you want uh, President Trump to be obese, he is. Is this why people buy season tickets to a losing team? Yes. Wow. But they keep pretending like they're going to win. This year is going to be different. Yes. No, no, it's not. It's never different. So – but the hard part about this whole weight thing is that it's not – nobody wants to believe that you can pound hamburgers and fillet a fish all day. And he may just do that like once a month. You don't know. It just we said that, that that's his but, favorite meal, right? But the doctor made a really good point that here's the deal. He doesn't exercise, but mm-hmm. I, we basically spent a lot of our time talking about his need to exercise and his need to eat right. He needs to better utilize executive time. And guess which one he'd rather do? Work what? on his nutrition or work on his exercise? Probably nutrition. He'd rather work on nutrition. Which I think is the majority of our country. Yeah. We'd rather change what we eat rather than go out and do something that's, physical if we don't want to do that. That's it. And there, he says the, the doctor says he's going to enlist the first lady uh-huh. in trying to help him make more healthier choices. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> we all know what it's like. All she has to do is – I mean they have chefs there, but apparently he's not loving their food – He'd, yeah, you know, he's afraid of being poisoned. Yeah, <laughs> according to some reports, 
Like, was that from Fire and Fury? That was in the book, which apparently at the House subcommittee hearing, there were several copies sitting around the room with the members oh, of Congress. Rude. Really? As they were questioning, it was the uh, the Homeland Security Yeah, that's secretary. disgraceful. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Well, apparently your president I was waiting for someone normal. to go, on page 49. Yeah. It says that you said, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you imagine uh, the health report from Kim Jong-un's doctor? Oh, it was perfect health. I mean, there's no such thing as more perfect health. Like 4% body fat. That's what it'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he's ripped. Good stuff, folks. Straight ahead, we will be talking about uh, football fans, political partisans, and evolutionary forces. Is it something about how we have evolved as humans that makes us uh, choose teams and fight so, you know, so aggressively for our team. Is there something about that? I believe so. We'll be discussing it straight ahead. Football and politics seem like they are worlds apart, right? One deals with the ball and teams, the other deals with the country and laws. But some say that football fanatics and politicians and political pundits, even uh, even political partisans, are not all that different. Here to speak with us today is Gregory Murray. He's a professor of political science at Augusta University, also the executive director of the Association for Politics and Life Sciences. And we're honored to have you here, Gregory. Thanks for your time and thanks for being with us. Good morning, Matt, from, believe it or not, snowy Augusta. I know. I can't believe that. It's crazy. I'm sitting here looking out my window at the snow coming down. Uh. Quite unusual. It is unusual. And by the way, I love your uh, blog that you write. It's called Caveman Politics. It's on Psychology Today, and uh, you just do a great job there. Oh, thank you. You're very, you're very kind. I luckily have some really interesting material to work with. In so, fact, um, but thank you. You're very kind. That's how we found this latest and greatest. Is you, you, you bring up a really interesting point that um, fanatics, football fans, or any really sports fans or fanatic, um, also they have a lot in common with um, our political partisans, don't they? They have a tremendous amount in common with them. And, you know, I mean, the first thing that started me thinking about this was, you know, it's, it's playoff time in, <laughs> That's in right. football season. And I'm sitting there watching these folks, uh, sometimes in really, really, really frigid weather, not wearing many clothes for some reason, and <laughs> with their bodies painted crazy colors, out there rooting for a football team that, quite frankly, if they stayed at home, they could probably watch on TV in much greater comfort. And the question is, why on earth, or at least this is what came to my mind, why on earth would people go do that? And I think it's some of these forces that end up affecting football fans and political partisans and political talking heads and all those sorts of of people. Mm. And it, But it really skews, even as we were talking about President Trump's health, I mean, it even skews how you listen to the doctor talk about President Trump's health. If you don't, if you don't like President Trump, if you're not of his ilk or party, or you don't love his uh, his philosophies, um, then you're, it's going to impact how you see and understand everything that's said about him. That is that's exactly right. And what's really, uh, you know, and in, in evolutionary psychologists, people who do some of the some of the kind of work I do might even talk about if you're not a member of his tribe, 
um, you know, it's going to affect uh, how you view him, and you're more likely to view him more negatively. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I think that what this is, this is sort of an in-group, out-group bias issue, that we want to think our group uh, is better than the other group. We benefit by being members of a group in terms of, in evolutionary terms. You know, I mean, quite frankly, people in, in human ancestral time, uh, if they were a member of a group, they were certainly more likely to have access to mates, obviously, if yeah. they were a member of a group. And they were more likely to acquire other resources, shelter and food and such. Um, to survive and reproduce. So uh, humans have developed this sort of ultra-sociality that, um, you know, we just like being in groups. We form into groups, and then we end up having a strong preference for our groups. And um, that group could be either our football team or our political party. Interesting. So it's I, it's we don't always think of it as tribal, but... Uh, you know, kind of the evolutionary biologists would say we've learned to be more tribal because um, we needed to survive in the with a group. That's exactly right. And we then our group's the best we, group. Yeah, we survived better when we were with a group. And, of course, our group, right, we were interdependent. So, um, you know, we would help our, our friends. They would help us. And we were much more likely to do that than members of another group. So... There's a strong and, and Dave and I, Dave Schmitz and I argue um, in this paper. There's a you know there's an evolutionary force involved with this that kind of drives people to quite frankly in some in some in some cases sort of mindless devotion to whatever their particular groups are. Interesting. Talk uh, talk for us, Greg, about the um, some of the research that and and the. Like the the drawings that were done as part of the research, I mean, it's it's really fascinating to see how biased we are. It, yeah, it really is. So Dave, Dave, this was part of of some research that Dave had done initially, and he was kind enough to include me with it. And it goes back to even our very initial study where we had people draw um, leaders meeting. <clears throat> each other or their ideal leader. And in this case, Dave had, right around the 2008 election, which was um, Obama versus McCain, and then the 2012, which is Obama versus Romney, he basically had um, people draw pictures of them meeting. Now, this is nice, right, because you're not telling people, oh, hey, look, we're trying to figure out who's bigger in the picture or anything like that. You're just saying, hey, just draw this. They have The people doing it have no idea. What what's measuring being thought about. So we had them do that, got some really interesting pictures, but from the very broad perspective, what we found was people were more likely to draw their candidate as physically bigger hmm. than the opposing party's candidate. Now, this is crazy to me. Yeah. Now, I, I'm Quite frankly, I'm, I'm kind of a prime scientific candidate for doing this research, because when I see this sort of formidability research, I still kind of shake my head and say, I just, you know, I just can't believe we behave this way. But we found it time after time after time. And so what this showing us is, is this bias is really strong. Right? I yeah. mean, to the point where objectively, what we know, I mean, so what we knew was, yes, of course, uh, Obama was taller than McCain, and actually quite a bit, but there were still a large proportion of um, Republicans who drew McCain taller. Hmm. 
On the other hand, though, um, Romney was actually a little bit about an inch taller than Obama, and people still distorted that. But what was just the most fascinating finding from this particular story was uh, we had them also draw Sarah Palin and Joe Biden meeting. And those were the vice presidential candidates in 2008, and it was really interesting because more than half of Republicans drew Sarah Palin is taller than Joe Biden, right? <laughs> Despite the fact yeah. he's actually seven inches taller. And not only that, we all walk around every day and we see that men are predominantly much bigger, much taller, much more physically formidable uh, than women are. Yeah. So it was, it, it flew in the face to a large degree of common, basically common sense. So anyhow, so that's that was this research that we did. We had some really interesting pictures, and and uh, but it, the the finding itself was fascinating. That really is, and I guess it tells us too that um, we we have this inherent bias. That it's subtle, it's quiet. I mean, I can just see them drawing the picture and not ever really questioning the height, but the just seeing that they're equal. They're they're equal in magnitude or power, but. Um, deep down, you, you can have a team, and you've seen it in sports and athletics, where your team is obviously inferior. Your team is oh, in yeah. no way, shape, or form even in the same ballpark, yet you still argue as if they are equal. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And um, it's just how we feel. It helps us. Now, I, I as a political scientist, okay, I can put my hardcore political scientist hat on yeah. or, or psychologist hat on and say, okay, so I'm, for instance, trying to assess who's really going to win a football game, right? right? Now, I've watched football all my life, but if you ask me, you know, sort of objectively, uh, could I really assess a football game and say that I have a certain probability that Team A is going to beat Team B? You know, I really don't. I can't analyze the line, you know, the offensive versus the defensive line. And I might know a little bit about how good one quarterback is versus the other. But, you know, I can't really sort of uh, realistically or effectively, you know, analyze the two teams playing each other and who is really likely to win. Well, some people, psychologists would argue and political scientists would argue um, that in situations that are complex, what we do is fall back on some of these shortcuts like this. Yeah. Right, yep. and because that helps us, that helps us come to a conclusion or to answer the question, who's going to win? Well, okay, I can't tell you if you know their offensive line is better than my offensive line, but they're my team, you know. So true. <laughs> so you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick my team, and the same thing with my candidates. I can't really tell you when push comes to shove, getting down into tax policy and immigration policy and all that. I mean, yeah, I have a general sense of whether I oppose or support certain things in it, but there are a lot of details when yeah. you get into issues like that. Well, this is one way. Partisanship is one way to sort that out. If I just say I'm going with the plan or the candidate that's on my team, I don't have to expend all those mental resources you know, really assessing and investigating tax policy and thinking about it and all that sort of stuff. I just say, hey, 
I'm going with my team. Yeah. So there's a psychological uh, benefit to doing this as well. So it, it helps us psychologically. It helps us make better decisions or like faster decisions, but it right. doesn't necessarily help in the accuracy of the decision. It's also interesting how, how confident we are. So we can be incredibly oh, yeah. confident. So where's the confidence coming from if it's not coming from the facts? You know, actually, it's, it's, it's interesting you ask that because there is a lot of research that shows that um, people are not necessarily more accurate when they use these types of shortcuts or, as they're technically called, heuristics. Yeah. And, um, but pe- we know that people do use them. We also know that it's, it's actually really interesting. People who are, are wrong are actually more certain in their attitudes oftentimes than people that than people who are right. And I have not studied that that issue in detail, but I think a lot of it comes down to people um, not wanting to say that they're wrong, so they really cling to those attitudes that they've expressed or those beliefs they've had. And again, quite frankly, it takes more effort mentally or cognitively to process an argument that's when somebody says that you're wrong, um, right, than it is to when somebody says that you're correct. Yeah. So if you say that I'm wrong about something, then I have to go back and say, Ugh. one, emotionally, you know, I don't like being told I'm wrong, but two, I need to make sure. So I need to go back and evaluate everything that they're suggesting. Ugh. So and much that, work. Right? And, that's co- and that's cognitively costly. Yeah. So I don't want to do that. So maybe it just makes me dig in my um, heels even further. But I mean, I, again, this is not something I've studied a great deal other than just knowing that, it, that that's one of the things that happens. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Greg Murray, who is the executive director of the Association for Politics and the Life Sciences and an associate professor of political science at Augusta University. He also writes uh, for the Caveman Politics blogs on political or on psychology today. Um, Greg, so what are we, I guess, what are we supposed to do with this knowledge um, when we're wearing the goggles of partisanship um, or fanaticism? Uh, because, again, we feel this confidence, I guess, at some level of us because we are, we belong to a group, we belong to a group, hey, that may even be in the majority, 53% or whatever. Um, yeah. is, there, is there a way that we can, we can somehow turn off that 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 evolutionary approach to just being tribal and instead seek to be effective or you know more based on some facts yeah i i mean i think there are a couple of aspects to this that we can take away from it and just being aware of it and one is to recognize when we're expressing an opinion Realize, you know, particularly a political opinion, say, realize that we are probably looking at it through our partisan lens. Right. Um, you know, and we need to make sure and discount. And one of the tests I think about when I'm looking at this sort of stuff is, is, is there anything that the person in the opposing party says that I can agree with? Right? Yeah. yeah. And if I get to the point where I say that person is talking and there is not a single thing that they're saying that I agree with, I want to be aware, and I try to be, because this happens to me from time to time, you know, and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, am I really, is this just my partisanship blinding me on this? Certainly, in these really complicated issues, there's something uh, that that person is saying, you know, that I can agree with. So that's one thing, is just being aware of it. And I think probably 
I'm very concerned about uh, sort of the tone of the political um, discussion that's going on. And I worked in politics for several years. I'm not really comfortable with the, with how personalized it's become. Mm. Um, and the sense that, you know, if you dis- disagree with me, you're a terrible, evil person. And I-, I think if we just realize that sometimes when people are disagreeing with us, that maybe it's our partisan, you know, our partisan bias that's kind of kicking in, yeah. maybe it'll keep us, it'll, it'll, you know, reel us in a little bit and keep us maybe from saying, being quite as harsh uh, in what we say. So that's a couple of things yeah. that I think, I mean, because in the end, in a democracy, you know, it's about compromise, and if you're calling somebody terrible names all the time, um, you know, they're they're probably not going to want to compromise with you right. um, in any way. So I think that's I, that's that's the way I use this, and quite frankly, you know, when I'm dealing with, particularly when I teach, you know, intro, introduction to American government, I spend a lot of time on the semester talking about that exact issue and just being aware it does not mean it's going to change your opinions in any way. You're probably still going to disagree with that person on the vast majority of uh, issues. But what it also means, but what it might mean is if you're aware of it, that you're at least a little more thoughtful, you take a little more time, um, you maybe avoid a knee-jerk sort of reaction. Yeah. It'll just slow you down a little bit. And I think that's really useful. That's such great advice. And also, any advice on... Uh, I, I mean, I guess if we change the thought, we eventually change the feeling. Um, but it seems like, too, we we should be watching out for our confidence that's not necessarily substantiated. Um, is, is there anything we can do to to maybe, maybe I don't know, remain humble or, or questioning of our what we're feeling that feels so right, even yeah. when we're wrong? I don't know. I'm not sure I have any sense of that. I, I'm not even sure that doesn't come from, you know, mom and dad growing up. Yeah, no, right, exactly. I, I don't. I I don't know. Um, it's it's something. I don't know. It's something that you learn. Um, like it's funny you say that because I was actually talking to a grad student um, actually yesterday, and uh, she was writing some stuff with some real certainty in a paper she was doing, and I said, you know, we're we're scientists. We not we're not certain <laughs> about many things. So maybe if you could say you know, maybe this is going to happen, or it suggests this is going to happen, you know, that's that's sort of, uh, you know, a, a better way to go, at least in terms of what scientists did. Maybe taking that over to the real world, um, you know, where we as people, we can have our opinions, they can be strong opinions, um, but that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily it's right. Yeah. And um, I think we just need to be aware of that. And again, I don't, I don't know how you really, I don't know how you train no, that. You, you probably have to be looking, and you have to be aware that it's an issue. Well, because it gets back to that thing you're talking, you were talking about earlier about people, people who are wrong digging in their heels even more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right? Or we talked that we talked about. Um, you know, and you just have to be. MPs, people just do that, and you just have to be aware of it. 
and hopefully that's a thing that people can overcome. I don't know if you have to be massively embarrassed at some point to overcome your certitude about everything or what, but, um, uh, you know, it's a tough problem. Well, and if you live long enough, you will be massively embarrassed. Of course, that's absolutely true. I agree with that. So true. Gregory, we appreciate you. Greg Murray's his name, and uh, he does the great work. If you go to Caveman Politics, uh, just Google Caveman Politics. You'll find a blog on Psychology Today, plus his wonderful work there as an associate professor of political science at Augusta University. Good stuff, folks. Uh, Straight ahead, we'll do a little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, there's this there's this concept I teach when I coach with my clients about it's called uh, well, there's two concepts. One is called assumed necessity. Assumed necessities are those things that we all assume have to be a certain way. And I don't know if you've noticed um, many times those things get upset uh, or tipped over or sometimes just don't play out the way you thought they would. Assumed necessity could be something, you know, you assume that uh, a healthy marriage is 50-50, right? Or we're each giving our best part. And that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because you that's kind of the contract, the obligation, the belief you bought into. And yet eventually what you might find out is many times in a marriage, it's not 50-50. It might be you're pulling a lot more of the weight for a period of time. And so um, assume necessity is something that if if you're really going to fight – how things have to be um, and not allow things to kind of rotate and move and be what they need to be for a given period of time, then then you might set yourself up. I, I learned that by watching my father-in-law take care of my mother-in-law, where for a long period of time, it wasn't 50-50. It was, it was him doing everything for her. And so if you assume that it has to be a certain way, you'll probably end up being disappointed. Another rule that I teach uh, when I work with clients is this uh, concept, and you've heard me mention it before, I believe, on the show called logical force. And logical force is this idea that we were just talking about with Greg Murray where it feels logical and you use your logic to justify your behavior in your life or your in your marriage. But in reality, sometimes what's logical isn't moral, right? It might be logical to leave your partner if they do something uh, that's harmful to the relationship. It's just logical. And if you went and surveyed all of your your friends and your coworkers and everybody, then nine out of ten of them would say, oh, I would leave him too for the exact same thing. But um, because it's logical doesn't make it moral, meaning doesn't make it aligned to your moral code, to your moral belief system. And so a lot of us argue logic, and we even we see it being argued in football and politics. All the logic of why it's okay to say something or do something politically, but it still might be immoral. It still might be wrong morally. <laughs> It might be wrong to name call somebody and and you know embarrass them and shame them in the political world. Now logically it makes sense because we're trying to win an election. I mean how many times during the elections do you hear someone say, "Well, I don't like what this person stands for, 
But logically, we need a Republican in there. So I'm going to vote for the Republican. The problem with logical force is all you get in the end is logic. You don't get anything that's moral. You don't get anything that's ethical. You don't get anything that's healthy. Well, yeah, but then once we do the immoral thing to get the moral thing, then I will be more inclined to get more future good moral things. Oh, really? Is that how this works? So one of the rules I just suggest to a lot of uh, my clients and especially when we're trying to, to make better decisions in our lives is at some point we need to go back to what we value, to what our principles are, to what our highest principles are, the ones that drive our spirituality, the ones that drive our essence, the ones that drive our deeper sense of who we are. What, what is the decision that needs to be made here, even if it's a hard decision – what decision needs to be made that is moral, then that way we can at least have the support of our moral uh, cause and have what we call moral authority. I'd much rather in the end have moral authority than logical authority, if that makes sense. I'd rather do what's right than what everyone else deems is, uh, is smart or logical because sometimes the smartest things we do they're immoral, and but incredibly logical. They're good for everybody except a few. And the sad thing about having true power with people and true power to lead people is at some point you'll find out your greatest leaders are the ones that made the moral decision, even to their detriment. They just did what was right. Anyway, a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. We'll take a break. Continue the journey with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Hey, uh, what, what would you do if all of a sudden your your school was saying, okay, kids, no more friends. You're not allowed to have friends. We're going to ban kids from having best friends. Sorry. No best friends. Yeah. Which apparently is happening. This, in, this in apparently, school. it's a trend in uh, European schools and now some American schools. This is out of uh, U.S. News and World Reports. Okay. The uh, let me find is trying to see if the name here of the person who wrote this is included in the print that I made because she's a psychologist. Yes, and her name is uh, Dr. Barbara Greenberg. Okay, she's in Connecticut. Yeah, twenty-one years practicing. She's been doing child it. psychologist. Yeah. So the the idea is um, certainly in life we all benefit from having close friends and confidants, those who really get us. On the other hand, there is something dreadfully exclusionary occurring when a middle schooler tells the girl sitting next to her that she is best friends with the girl sitting in front of them. Of mm. course, this scenario plays out in a variety of ways, but the child after child comes into her therapy office distressed when their best friend is now given someone else this coveted title. Yeah, now it's about a title. So now we're dealing with, now this person's my best friend and you're excluded from being my best yeah. friend and that means a lot and that label's important. Wow. So some schools are trying to, at an early age, just teach kids best friends is not something we do here. We have friends with everyone. We're friends with everybody on earth. And so we can protect everyone from having this sure. social stress of this person now doesn't like me. 
the same level as someone is else. Is there going to be at some point a stage where we then allow people to have a best friend and then suffer the pains of the fact that your best friend has a best friend that's not you? I'm not sure. I mean, because this is kind of life. This does is this how seem life like works. This is going too far. Well, I mean, it makes it's a neat theory. It's a neat idea that we should like everyone and care for everyone. And but I think the minute you're regulating best friends, yeah. But but I mean, it, it's it would be nice if we could just say everyone's our friend. I mean, to me, it seems like a really great point to teach as a teacher. Yeah, that you got to be careful when you say stuff like that because how would it feel? If you weren't a best friend to somebody, then you'd feel left out. So just think – I mean I would just do it more as a point, but I wouldn't do it as a rule. A rule. Like you're staying after school. Do you have a best friend? <laughs> Drop and give me 20. <laughs> but but, but I, I don't know. So don't it's know. more of a vocabulary thing? Yeah. To me it just seems People like – People are still going to have friends they play lesson. with, but they're trying to teach that – we're not using. We're not weaponizing this word <laughs> to hurt your child. Right. That's a and, microaggression. And at the same time, parents need to sort of chill out and realize that best friends exist. And yeah. This and is a and thing. by the way, they're going. This is going to happen forever. Eventually, but, you're, you'll move into a neighborhood, and then you'll see your neighbors going out to dinner with the other neighbors, and you weren't invited. But and then it says, but but teach your children about the importance of having close friends, but also being friends to a wide circle yeah. of people. Yeah. Not yeah. just hanging Draw out with that a one bigger person. circle. Yeah. And eventually that would get back to what we talked about earlier. Draw a bigger circle of fans or, or you know, teams you love, political parties, things you read. Yeah. Broaden your horizons, folks. That's the advice from Terry South. <laughs> we'll continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Cole. Jeff is on sick batical. He's out. Uh, as all good professors do, he's out supposedly studying and uh, getting a richer education, like a sabbatical, but he's doing it while being sick. And I know he's listening to the show. I've never understood that phrase, sabbatical, what it really meant. I think it just means you're taking a break. Oh, it has the word bath, like bat, like bat, like Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Okay. So they're taking a semester of rest or a year of rest. Or a couple days of rest. Yeah. In Jeff's case, it's just going to be a couple days. Mm-hmm. He's uh, He's got the gombu, I assume. Um, he's not talking publicly about it, unlike the president of the United States that has his doctor speak for an hour to talk about his health because people have so many questions about it. It went for an hour. It went for an hour. and I didn't even know that until I was watching what the news last night. And they said an hour-long press conference. By the way, it's the most it's the most we questions a, answered by this White House. We have a government shutdown on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. There's but, no agreement on anything leading up to this. Okay. They can't even agree on the short term spending bill within the Republican right. side of this argument. So are you more worried about that or yeah. the physical health of your president? It's what it is. He's he's the guy. I mean physical and mental. It, it's a big deal because if you went to the doctor and had a physical. Yeah, if. And then like hypothetically, 
Then you then your doctor stood in front of the press yep. and a bunch of people that didn't like you for one hour and answered questions. Would yeah. you not be nervous? Yeah, I, I w- it wouldn't be comfortable. But uh, the guy did say that the president ordered me to come out here and answer all of your questions. That's See, how that, it was phrased. That's a good president. Yeah. He he ordered, get out there. and Especially the mental cognitive part. Yeah. Do that part, too. And in fact, uh, do, do you know what is involved in that test? I don't know. Flashcards? No. It's a hard... It's Throwing a, darts at a wall or something? No. Okay. It is a very difficult test. In fact, um, you won't believe how complicated it is. Yeah. It's, again, it's a 30-point test. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get it. The, the test is called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, also known as MOCA. MOCA. Huh. It's a, it's a well-known, well-tested assessment that doctors can quickly use to detect co- mild cognitive dysfunction. So if somebody has cognitive, cognitive dysfunction, this would be able to get it on – I mean if they have extreme, I'm sure it would come up in this as well. But this is going to get just somebody that's just gently you know, starting to have cognitive impairment. The 30-point test takes about 10 minutes and asks the patient to perform a simple batch of memory and mental tasks. Listen to this. Okay. Including you have to draw a line uh, between a number and a letter in ascending order. Okay. So you have to go 1A, 2B, 3C, 4D. Do that. So these are like sobriety tests almost. It kind of is, yeah. Okay. But you're not on the side of the road in the middle of a snowstorm. Understood. Yeah. The tasks include drawing a line. (laughs) It also includes um, uh, the patient is asked to draw a clock and put numbers on it. Huh. The patient is asked to draw a cube. Okay. So he has to draw a cube. Like a 3D object or uh-huh. just – okay. You have to name basically a lion, a rhinoceros, and a camel. From pictures? Uh-huh. Okay. There's a memory section where they read the, a list of words. Subjects must repeat them, do two trials, do a recall after five minutes. So I give you like five words and you have to try to recall them. Face, While they try to distract you? Face, velvet, church, daisy, red. Huh. Okay. I mean, like, I'd do horrible on that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I forget things after two minutes. No, nah, yeah. I even forgot. Whatever those words were that you just what read. What you just said. <laughs> it's so weird. They, um, Likewise, they... last night, uh, for some reason, we're flipping around. I think uh, Ellen DeGeneres has a game show. Yeah. And I got all the final round questions correct. They were oh, just, really? They were just photographs of cartoon characters. I nailed it. I would have won $100,000. Wow. So just, yeah, it was just comparison to It was $100,000? Yeah. I mean, the guy went through several rounds, but then they went, here's some cartoon characters, name them. And it was like Charlie Brown and SpongeBob SquarePants, and yeah. he won 100 grand. But See, also sometimes they have to answer those questions when they're being spun around on a spinning table. Oh, is that or how it works? Yeah, I just, I just held saw up like, by a wedgie or... Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, it's it's an interesting a, little show. Yeah, I just watched the final round and went, well, I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like similarly in this case with the, with the cognitive uh, test here for the president. He made it. Yeah, he killed it. He didn't. Twenty but, a score of twenty six is considered normal. Your president thirty out of thirty. If he was off, yeah, you could see where this some of this could trip him up. That's right. So he's not probably um, cognitively impaired. Yeah. You just disagree with his presentation. Or, I mean, I do believe he might be a little emotionally impaired at times. Like when he gets hijacked by CNN, 
We talk about emotional intelligence. Yeah, then he yeah. goes off a little bit. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he empathy. has mental health issues. He's he's shown he has a, a you know, struggles with empathy for others. Yeah. I mean, but who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's going on. Plus Steve Bannon, everybody wants to talk to Steve Bannon. Right. It's and, funny because some people can't. Yeah. They're not uh, allowed. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. But today Steve's the bride. Everybody yeah. wants to talk to Steve. But now he only wants to talk to Mueller's group, I and guess. Corey Lewandowski's lawyer, lawyered up, so he's apparently looking forward to being questioned by somebody. Oh, boy. So what this might be telling us, too, though, is— And that would be all the campaign advisors, right? The campaign yeah. chairman? But it seems like now we may be wrapping up some of this because all these bigger names are now coming in. Now they yep. may be scheduling President Trump's interview. Hope Hicks was in on yeah. Friday, I think, for quite a while. But she went to the offices. She didn't. She wasn't subpoenaed or in court she or just, grand jury. She just or showed up and brought bagels. Yeah. She just talked to him for a while. Hey, everybody. Thought I'd come answer questions. <laughs> That's awesome. I Did mean, you like the blueberry schmear or was it oh, – sorry. <laughs> Could I get the um, harvest blend? So, uh, OK. Lots going on in D.C. as well. What else should we be paying attention to there, Terry? Senator Lindsey Graham missed the good – he apparently missing the good old days. During a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Tuesday, the South Carolina Republican lamented that President Trump had changed in a disturbing way over the last week, clearly referencing the president's disparagement of Haiti, El Salvador, and unnamed African nations. Last Tuesday, we had a president who I was proud to golf with call my friend who understood immigration had to be bipartisan, but he also understood the idea that we had to do it with compassion, Graham said before making a plea to the president. He goes, I don't know where that guy went. I want him back. After he made his remark, Graham uh, ran into reporters outside the hearing and told them that he believed the president's staff was to blame for this whole ordeal. He goes, I think someone on his staff gave him really bad advice between 11, or 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock on Thursday, Steve Miller. Oh, wow. Uh, he added, we cannot make a deal on immigration with people at the White House who have an irrational view on how to fix immigration. The theory is that Stephen Miller, the uh, speechwriter, general aide to yeah, the president. The, the senior buddy. Who is really motivated by immigration issues, stacked that room with uh, immigration hardliners on the Republican side who would not agree to anything when it came to DACA or any of these types of situations, kind of blowing up the meeting instead of bringing in people who were interested in making a deal. Interesting. Seeing that this has yeah. to do with the government shutdown yeah. on Friday. So instead of trying to come to an agreement, he brought in people who weren't going to agree. And that's what Lindsey Graham's theory that he's not referring no, to is what he's saying. No, this is easier to figure out. Oh, okay. Just go watch Fox News and find out what was on Fox News yep. between 10 and noon. A little timestamp there. Then you'll know exactly what happened. Asked Tuesday why President Trump doesn't take Senator Chuck Schumer's advice and prove he's, quote, not a racist by making a deal on DACA. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders called that an outrageous claim and asked in return, if Trump really is racist, then why did NBC give him a show for a decade on TV? Oh, that means ABC's racist. Well, NBC. Oh, NBC's racist. It was a reasonable question from a Fox News correspondent, John Roberts, that says more about the network that hired Trump to host The Apprentice than does the man currently occupying the Oval Office, the person writing the art and article kind of So I guess what we're saying is if he passes a DACA bill, then he's not a racist? That's what Chuck Schumer's trying to trick him into doing. Well, that's redunculous. I know. Okay. 
But he said it. And so right. the, it comes up the next day. North Korean athletes will apparently uh, arrive at the Winter Olympics with 230 cheerleaders in tow. According to officials in Seoul who have held talks with the reclusive nation in anticipation of the event. The games will take place next month in South Korea. Meanwhile, Japanese foreign minister called the use of such tactics as a charm offensive and warned other leaders not to be, or, or to be skeptical. It is not the time to ease pressure or reward North Korea, he said. The fact that North Korea is engaging in dialogue could be interpreted as proof that the sanctions are working. Mm-hmm. They're feeling the pressure yeah. and they're actually... Yeah kind of caving the ap reports that the two nations will march together during the opening ceremony oh, so all great. these things they've been working on are happening when it yeah. comes to the olympics now um okay so are these actual cheerleaders like dressed like cheerleaders i don't know or are these just fans that are going to be cheering for them they might just be fans don't you think a lot of people would cheer for the north koreans i don't know i mean just in the spirit of of the olympics sure Everybody should cheer for the North spirit of Korea. the Olympics. Yes, whatever that is. Well, and especially because they, you could be bombed at any minute. <laughs> this threat. Yeah. Hey, good job. So uh, they're going to be in the games. They're going to march in the opening ceremonies. They're bringing cheerleaders. It's like a bowl game. You have to bring your own cheerleaders and the band. Do they have a marching band? Because that may. would be they fantastic. May. They have a marching army. They have that parade all the time. Can but you there's imagine? no. There's some guy with a tuba. <laughs> NK is on the tuba. Yeah, yeah. It'll be great. <laughs> Uh, and finally, there are many approaches to avoiding paying a fee for excessive uh, luggage when you're traveling in the air, by air these days. One man flying out of Iceland, uh, he tried boarding the plane with 10 shirts and eight pairs of pants on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so instead of paying the f- extra fee for the carry-on, he put all of his clothes on. Oh, he just, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So he just wore everything. Yeah. The video, uh, he posted the Twitter, Facebook, one of them. He's wandering around and looks like the kid from uh, the movie The Christmas Story. Yeah, the yeah. little boy that can't put his arms down. Right. Yeah, that guy. He looks like him. <laughs> Is he not hot and sweaty? I imagine he was. He's just trying to get back to England. It says on Twitter, William said that he couldn't afford the excess baggage fees, about $125, yeah. as a result of being left homeless in Iceland for over a week. He also claimed British Airways had told him he could board the flight if he wore all of his clothes at once, and then they rejected him. Of course. British Airways says, we don't do that. Well, he's got to have his arms down. He can't. His yeah. arms would be in the face of his... His neighbor. Or it'd be hanging out in the aisle. Yeah. He's going to lose it. It'd be a problem. When that snack cart comes by, they don't look and make sure they're not going to hit you. They just ram into you. Oh, apologize. Would well, you like a free yeah. What if your seatmate like starts taking like 20 you know, levels of clothes off? Right. A little, yeah. This is just like going to... And then well, I mean, about an hour before the flight's over, he's got to start putting them all back on. He looks pretty thick. Yeah. With all that, all the clothes on and winter coat and hat. I mean, he's in Iceland, right? So right, right, right. He dressed appropriately. Man. So don't do that is what they're trying no, to say. No, that's bad. That's very bad. Okay. Uh, that's good news. That's really good news um, that the I didn't realize the airlines would be so helpful. Little, I mean, to a point. Little, he tried another airline, did the same thing. They said no. And the third airline finally let him go home. Like that. I don't know if quite like that. He may have just they wave a baggage fee just to get him out. Maybe the airport was just tired of him wandering around yeah. causing problems. Hey, how about you guys? <laughs> how about you? Can you uh, get me on this plane? What's it going to take to get me on this plane right now? He's got his thumb out on the tarmac, <laughs> just waiting for someone. Anybody? So uh, bad news about your retirement. What? 
Uh, Bitcoin plunged by 25% to a six-week low early today due to growing fears of a regulatory crackdown in South Korea. Oh, boy. Come on. China's already cracking down. South Korea's next. Everybody's after my Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency briefly dropped below $10,000. If you remember a couple weeks ago, it was at 20000 per Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's down to 10000 a Bitcoin. That's a big loss uh, for those people looking to retire off Bitcoin. Uh, whoever bought at the top of the market, too. Or mortgaged homes or whatever oh, they did. South Korea has walked back a vow to ban sales of Bitcoin, but the country's finance minister said the shutdown of virtual currency exchanges is still one of the options open to the government. Warren Buffett, I believe it was, said this is just going to disappear. Yeah. This isn't going to work. He, uh, when he said that, he said, I'm, I'm headed off to speak to a group of young investors, some college students that are working towards a career in finance. And he goes, they're all going to talk about Bitcoin. I have no idea about Bitcoin because it's not worth learning about. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that's going to disappear. And that's a guy that knows his money. Yeah. Yeah. That's good so, news. That's so, really good news. Yeah. Watch your retirement if it's in Bitcoin. Uh, you're you're a big Xbox player, right? Mm, I have a PlayStation. Oh, you're a big PlayStation But they're all, player. I mean, yeah. And you play Call of Duty? Uh, I have old versions of the game. I played it with my son the other day. The World War II, the new one that came out? No, I played Black Ops. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which? It's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. Yeah? Um, I didn't like it, yeah. quite honestly. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love shooting someone, you know. <laughs> As much as I love doing anything. Right, sure. But it's it's just intense. Yeah. So this woman... Gets over the top. A young woman got her boyfriend a new Call of Duty game for his Xbox. And a very generous... You know, that's a gift. That's a great gift. And every woman... I mean, that's like the perfect gift for a guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this game, though, however, came with a special set of rules that were attached... Ashley Davidson created a list of five rules for her boyfriend, Blake Perry, including statutes requiring him to put the game down if she calls and to keep her entertained if he's playing the game in her presence. I mean, this is a smart woman. Realizing he needs the game because, I mean, he's violent. <laughs> no, I don't know why. Uh, she made a list of rules. Uh, Davison, a student at the University of Central Oklahoma, even included a space for Perry to sign the agreement that required he not forget about his girlfriend while playing the game. So would you sign such an agreement? If it, Now, she's allowing time to actually play the game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you have to obey the rules. You sure. have to entertain me while you're playing the game. Ooh. And you must remember me. While you are engaged in said game. Is she playing with you? No, probably not. Oh. See, that's the problem is you need to put all your focus. The game's difficult. These controllers have like 20-something buttons on them. So yeah. there's all these oh, things no, you need to do. that's what I hated do. about it. They're very, very intricate. Yeah. And you can't just be like having some common, you know, just some conversation with no. your wife while you're trying to save the world. Because well, that's see, what you're not, doing. They're not married yet. They're not, well, I mean. So they don't know how to do that. Also, it, Yet is probably a yeah. loose. They're probably not going to get married at this but rate. But she's not going to sit there and try to have a constructive conversation to help the game. She's going to want to talk about, say, her day. Yeah. What did so and so do? Well, no. At you, the you, when you said it, when you said that, you kind of snarled. It's like, a better situation day. if she lets him have his time. But it's limited. He's not going to do like a six-hour run here. It's maybe an hour. That's his time, uh, and then they can have their time. But she's saying she wants. I know. Her time during his time. That's just unreasonable. Really? Um, She has to put the game down if she calls. 
Is that mm. unreasonable? I don't know. Speakerphone exists. No, but like, no, no, no. During the call, you yeah. have to put the game down. You have really? to holster your weapon. Well, th- does she guarantee that it's going to be interesting, the conversation? No. That's mm. not part of the contract. Now, if he wants to contractually obligate her to that. That's what I would have a counter proposal that your phone call and conversation must be yeah. interesting. Then she'll just do the takeaway and say, Let's, okay, don't worry about it. Let's just not do the game. Yeah, see? That, and then she's she's not negotiating a good faith here. Yeah. She has to – he has to keep her entertained and um, she, they made, she made it a legal document and then she posted yeah. it on Twitter yeah, and know. so far she has 30,000 likes. I would have a lawyer check that out first before you sign anything. Because you could really – you could ruin your gameplay right. for the rest of your life. He sounds like a serious gamer. Yeah. So he's going to value – this is a part of what he enjoys. This is part of his entertainment. He enjoys yeah. this. She needs to kind of respect that if like you're going to have a relationship. Maybe he's going to have to choose. Maybe she's asking too much. Maybe he can just scrap up 60 bucks somewhere. Yeah, maybe he needs a not... life and just go pay it for himself. <laughs> pay the fine? Yeah, but it was cute. It was a bonding experience where really? the, he was like, hey, babe, I'll do anything. I'll do anything just to be with you. And she'll be like, great, then turn off your game. But <laughs> I'm in the middle of a I'll campaign. I'll do almost anything. <laughs> Honey, I've, I'm freeing the world. I'm but, saving World War II. But if he's on a team, because yeah. it is a team-based game on some levels, yeah. if he's on a team, what about his responsibility to his teammates? But isn't it about love? Because once you choose I to be with each other- I think there's room in life for both. Yeah, says the gamer. There's your team and the person that loves you. Cleave unto your wife and unto none other. When's the last time I played video games by myself? Probably about five years ago. So you play on a team. No, no, no. Just meaning I don't, don't play, play on a team. But I mean even just turning on the, the game Good. just to – I don't Good. play. I don't have any time. The Good. other side is my son's around and he always wants to play his games. So we, we play his games. Good. Don't play your games in front of your son or you'll destroy him even more we, than we, you have. We right. open like 15 new characters on the uh, Batman game we have. So it's great. There's like way like 45 characters you can choose to be. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. He loves it. We're just flying around blowing Do stuff up. Do they shoot each other? Oh. Of course. But it's Legos. They explode into Lego bricks and then they just reassemble and you keep going. It sounds bloody. No, not really. It's Legos. Man. Okay. We just got the penguin. <sighs> oh, good. He was only like 25,000 little Lego bricks. It was fun. Really? Yeah. That sounds like you and your boy are having fun. It is. He enjoys it. And even more importantly, your wife has a great break. And she gets about an hour and a half of no six-year-old. Except she has two six-year-olds. Well, I'm mentally sure. And she does approach it that direction, too. I'm sure she does. (laughs) She's like, you are six. She She goes, I'm home with my kids. And I go, wait a second. That seemed to include – she goes, yes, it includes you. And I go, okay, good. Just check it. smart woman. (laughs) Smart woman. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about uh, leading in the moment. With a leadership expert talking about the book Impromptu, Leading in the Moment. Awesome stuff to uh, help you know how to respond as a leader in those difficult, you know, odd, everyday moments. Straight ahead.
One of the characteristics of great leaders is their ability to think on their feet and respond on the spot. They are able to inspire and influence in everyday situations, whether it be in the elevator, in the hallway, in a meeting. Yet many of us are afraid to speak up in these situations. We are afraid of being judged, of being criticized, or really we're worried that we just wouldn't have anything to say in the moment. So here to speak with us today about leadership and uh, her new book, Impromptu, Leading in the Moment, is uh, Judith Humphrey. She is uh, a founder of the Humphrey Group, a premier leadership communications firm, and also taught uh, communication courses at York University before entering the business world. Judith, thank you so much for being with us today. Matt, it's a pleasure. This is, I think, an essential leadership skill is the ability to kind of to handle the, the moment, the impromptu, you know, opportunity to speak, isn't it? It's very important. It's more important today than ever. I mean, impromptu speaking has always been something that people need to be good at in everyday situations, whether you're talking to a child, whether you're talking to your partner or a colleague in the community or or somebody in business. But the business world has changed, and there's much more impromptu speaking going on now. Yeah, we hear about... Um, you know, the the advancement of technology and everybody has their app that can get them so much information. Do, do you see in your experience, are people with all of this technology, are they getting better at public speaking and kind of the spontaneous, impromptu speaking, or are they are they losing their edge? Well, they're having more opportunities to speak impromptu, and that's why I wrote the book, because I think there are definitely skills that need to be learned and mastered to be an effective impromptu speaker. But the technology puts power in everybody's hands. Everybody's a knowledge worker. Everybody is a leader or a potential leader. And so these conversations can happen at any level, um, in any situation, you know, the elevators, the corridors, and meetings, and so forth. In fact, um, uh, today I will go do uh, some podcasts. I will sit down and be interviewed for uh, um, YouTube videos. I, I just met with a, an organization that does online dating, but they do it all through video. So this this need to actually speak is being is now being heightened. And now you've got to be able to just kind of pull out some YouTube video and make it work. What are some of the What are some of the principles that you teach um, uh, in your book, Impromptu? Well, one of the important things is to be able to read your audience to really understand where they're coming from. Um, so you start with the audience, whether it's a, a, you know, a discussion with your spouse or whether it's a discussion with your boss. You want to understand where they're coming from. And then you want to really know how to organize your thoughts and get to your point. And the book has a template for doing that. So is uh, so you got to know your audience. That's kind of the the basic, the most basic, healthy rule I think to any communication endeavor. And um, do you also have to know your medium, right? Through the the medium through which you'll be speaking. You do. Obviously, face to face is always the best. But there are other avenues today, and you want to think whether your message is going to come across well, whether tone of voice matters. If tone of voice and body language matter, and they usually do, it's much better to be in front of the other person when you're speaking rather than making a phone call or sending an email. Oh, I mean, 
I just in the last week, I've done conference calls, speaker phones, live video <laughs> chats. There's so many, and, and every one of them has their own kind of idiosyncrasies, their own benefits. Um, how do you really yeah. get to prepare for all of them, or do you not try to prepare for all of them, but just do you have other principles that allow me to just handle the moment? Preparation is absolutely important. In fact, the subtitle of my book, or the, the phrase on the front of my book, is prepare to be spontaneous. Mm. So preparation is important. And, and anybody who thinks that impromptu is the same thing as winging it is going to get into trouble. Uh, I'll give you an example. I know you talk, talk a lot about relationships and the importance of relationships, and impromptu speaking is a fabulous way of building relationships whether it's with family members or with, you know, business associates. But one of the impromptu talks that I gave, which I prepared for, was suggesting to my then boyfriend that we get married. Ah. <laughs> and um, I thought about it. I thought about whether he was ready. I felt he was ready to say yes and asked me, so I'd ask him. And then I prepared my script so I jotted down some notes about how I was going to start, how, what, what message I was going to deliver, what points I would put forward to elaborate that message, and how I would conclude. And I put those in writing and put them in my head and then went and spoke what appeared to be spontaneously, but it was actually very well crafted. Yeah. No, I, I, I noticed that a lot, but it is – um, the whole, there is kind of a, a paradox to what you're saying. Prepare to be spontaneous. It it takes preparation, and then you pull it off. Like, man, you're a genius. You didn't even think about that. But uh, I, I guess too, um, should we keep up the illusion that it was spontaneous, or should we sit there and say, oh no, I worried about this all night? Should we be I honest about our prep? Good. I think it look you look very smart. People look very smart, very clear-minded when they appear to be speaking spontaneously and yet they have a clear idea they're getting across, a persuasive idea. I think that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. It does set the expectation that you can do it again and you can do it again and um I, I just got asked to MC a wedding like a half uh, a wedding dinner about a half hour before the dinner began. I was just going there to hang out. Next thing I know, I'm the mm-hmm. MC. Is it uh, so? I mean, it does it does heighten the expectations, but it also you if you've done it enough, your ability is higher too. Yes, absolutely, because you master the skills. First of all, you have to know your subject. You have to know what you're talking about. If you're honoring someone, you have to know something about that individual. And then you have to collect your thoughts to the point where you say, this is the point I want to make about this person or this situation. So that really should be in your mind before you start speaking. Then if you're in a meeting and and you haven't had a chance to prepare a full mental script, then you can think about the proof points as you're speaking. But always have that focus, that single idea that you want to get across. That's good. What do we do with the emotion? Uh, it seems like a lot of times, Judith, what what really makes this difficult is, you know, not the content. It's just my emotion, my fear that I might have as I'm trying to be all impromptu and speak well, on true. impromptu. It's true. And it can be overwhelming and it can actually scare you to the point where you forget what you wanted to say. So I would say preparation 
is a way of uh, calming yourself, um, focusing yourself, and gaining more confidence because you know where you're going with that script and you know that it's an important message to deliver. Preparation um, is everything when it comes to impromptu. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So as we as, as uh, and you're convinced just in all of your experience that this can be learned. I mean, it sounds like a lot of times we think that speakers are just kind of born and not raised. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is that true? Is the, is speaking something that really anybody can get good at if they exercise it enough? Absolutely. You know, I've been in the speaking business. Um, I built a company for thirty years. Saw so many clients leaders at all levels um, gain these skills and feel very comfortable speaking on any stage. Um, So I know for a fact that it can be learned. In fact, one of the reasons I believe I went into communications was I was quite shy as a child. So my whole life has been spent building my own skills, and really preparation is what I've learned to do successfully and with a deep commitment. But it's it's a lot of fun, and when you can communicate on the stage, it's worth it all. Tie it to uh, tie it for us, Judith, to leadership, because I think a lot of times we think, um, you know, that leaders just are about charisma; they're about certain things. But what does the what does the leadership have to do with my ability to be spontaneous and and speak in the on, in the impromptu? It's really important. And by leadership, we're not referring only to the top executives. We're referring to leaders at all levels of an organization or leaders in the family, leaders in the community. So anybody can be a leader. But the starting point, if you want to lead when you communicate, is to think about it as a moment of leadership, to think that you're not just having a passing exchange with somebody in the hallway, but here's a potential leadership moment when you can inspire an employee or inspire your boss. I'll give you an example. Yeah. A lot of people go down the hall in, in business environments. They'll walk by somebody they know. Let's say they'll walk by one of their team members and say, how's it going? And they won't even stop to listen. They'll just go by. <laughs> That's a non-conversation, and certainly it's not an act of leadership. Take another scenario where somebody has this intention to lead in all these spontaneous situations. So let's say the boss walks down the hall, she sees one of her employees, she stops, looks at that employee, and says, I thought that was a terrific comment you made in the meeting. She pauses and she says, you know, I think it has, the idea you raised has great potential. I'd like to sit down with you and discuss it further. That's a leadership conversation. That's an act of leadership because she's inspired that staff member to believe more in himself than he ever did before he saw her at that moment. And she is inspired by that staff member's thinking. So that's the kind of thing that this book encourages people to do. Um, think of every moment you have, whether it's in the elevator, in the corridor, in a meeting, in a Q&A, you know, in an exchange with anyone or a group session, Think of all these as moments when you can express your leadership, inspire others, influence others. And you, uh, I guess, what's powerful about that? I mean, that 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 inspiration to have to be a leader. It seems like you also have to have followers. Like people have to be willing to follow you. And if you can't communicate 
uh, or, or even sometimes I've noticed sometimes you just need somebody that can be the voice for the group. Mm-hmm. And just because you have the ability to be the voice, you may also just inherently become the leader, the default leader, because you, you've you spent the time to prepare to say what needs to be said. Yes, that's it. That's what leadership is, the ability to create followership. And today's organization's title doesn't determine your leadership. But what determines your leadership, as you say, Matt, is the ability to create followership. And what that means is that people will listen to you, they'll care about your thinking, and they'll follow you. And we say that every impromptu script should end with a call to action. So you want to turn your message into some kind of action that the people you're talking to will implement. Mm, That's good. Again, we're speaking with Judith Humphrey, who is the author of many books, some of them uh, speaking as a leader, taking the stage, and her most recent book, Impromptu, Leading in the Moment. She is uh, a past communications uh, professor at York University, where she taught uh, classes there, and also is the the founder of HumphreyGroup.com, which is an organization helping uh, corporations and individuals to learn how to 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 be spontaneous in the moment. Um, Judith, also, I guess uh, there is an interesting corollary when we talk about speaking, and you brought it up earlier about. There's there almost needs to be a really healthy balance of speaking to listening, of voicing to understanding. Um, how do you strike the balance, and how do you know you're striking the balance with those that you're working with? How do you know you're striking the right balance? Mm-hmm. Well, listening is very important, and I think that you start with listening. You you know you're striking the right balance if you truly understand where your audience is coming from and let's say you're taking a one-on-one conversation you probe you actually there are three ways of listening and i recommend them all one is physically listening that is you just face the other person look the other person in the eye use body language that's directed toward the other person that's using your physical presence to listen second level is use your mind to listen so you're thinking about what the other person is saying where they're coming from, what they believe and don't believe. That's very important. And probing their minds, asking them questions. Second level listening. And third level of listening is emotional listening, where you're trying to grasp how the person feels or how the audience feels. If you do all those three things, you're bound to be ready to talk because you know exactly where the other person's coming from and what you say will be relevant and well-received. How do you, um, I, I guess, how and have you found a, a very easy way to do this? We talked about having to overcome your own emotion in a conversation, like your fear to have to say what needs to be said or to to take a position. That's that's one thing. How do I overcome the emotion that I see in the other so that I don't let that overly affect me? If somebody – I mean I have a lot of husbands that don't like it when their wife cries – um, or I have uh, people that that are dealing with somebody that's angry, and the minute they see that anger, it starts to impact their mm-hmm. ability to be in the moment. Well, that's an absolutely important point, that you don't want to react, you want to respond. And so you need to keep your own thinking clear in your mind and not be overwhelmed by someone else's emotion. How do you do that? I think it's just a question of knowing what you want to accomplish in that conversation, what you're 
messages and staying true to your message. And, of course, acknowledging your partner's emotion, um, you know, empathizing with whatever they're feeling. So you can do that. Reach out to them and give them some comforting words if they're crying or if they're upset. Mm. But stay true to what it is you feel you need to get across in order to improve the situation. Yeah. As we wrap this up, Judith, uh, what would you say? I always ask for the one thing. What's the one thing that that makes the biggest difference um, to for somebody to kind of stand in their moment, stand in that space, and deliver uh, the, what needs to be delivered? The biggest thing is preparation. So if you know you're going to have a meeting or an exchange of some kind, or you know that there's a possibility even of meeting somebody in the hall or in the elevator, um, collect your thoughts before that moment. Whether you're driving in or you're on the subway or you're on the train, say to yourself, if I see so-and-so, what will my message be? Or if I am in a conference today or a networking event and I see person X, what will I say to him or her? So constantly be preparing yourself mentally for all these impromptu exchanges, and you'll be so much better, and you will be successful in delivering your point. That's great stuff. Judith Humphrey, thank you so much for your great work and uh, just insights into the importance of of leading in the moment and uh, being able to, to stand uh, in that spontaneous moment and still seem spontaneous, but really help to lead people, drive people to a higher place. Great insights as we as we like to give you here on the show. Anything we can do to help you be the good in the world, that is our objective. We will continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of my um, biggest moments, I think, in life, I was was in college. I took a public speaking class and sat there with 20 really nervous college students as they were, you know, we, we knew we had 10 speeches that we had to give. Ugh, so scary. But I thought, and I did this, uh, I did this young, I think I was 18, 19 years old, and I realized at a young age that, holy cow, I can, boy, I can do this. I can give a speech that's uh, motivating and exciting, and and I'm telling you, it changed me, because now all of a sudden, I knew I could wor- I could work the words. In fact, my father-in-law always told me I had the gift of gab. And when he said it, it always sounded like offensive, like, oh, it sounds like I'm just a blabbermouth. But um, then uh, I, I learned to write. I learned to uh, do other things. I, I started learning radio even back then in the day and uh, doing broadcasting. And then I became a speaker. And notice I, my entire profession is around wordsmithing and the confidence to do that. Now I, I'm not – I usually don't get very nervous uh, speaking in front of large groups 
But all of a sudden, I realized that my confidence comes from my ability to carry myself. People might even think I'm a leader, even though I don't pay much attention to detail like that. But notice, to have a, a, to have the ability to speak is a gift. To have the ability to listen, in my belief, is even a higher gift. So if you can actually sit down and assimilate and take in what someone's saying— That's even more powerful, I think, than the ability to speak. But most people don't take a listening class. Think about it. Have you? Have you ever taken a class to learn to listen to another person? But even more importantly than listening would be the the ability to actually be impressed or moved or changed by the pain or suffering of another person and let it actually influence you. Now, nobody's taken that class. I have couples that come to learn how to listen to one another and communicate, but there's this magic moment I found in every real, I call it a real conversation, when we actually get real with each other because we're recognizing each other's emotions, we're exploring each other's story or stories, we're attending to each other's pain, and we're lifting each other. That's a real conversation, recognizing, exploring, uh, attending, and lifting the conversation. But if I can do that in this magical moment, and I was able to do it last night with some of my clients, they're hearing their partner is hurting, they're hearing that they're suffering, and then I just ask them something simple like, what does it feel like to know that your partner in life feels so unappreciated by you? And when somebody actually lets that deeper thought in, and they, they get emotional, like it feels horrible. I don't want her to feel that way. And once they have kind of the empathy about that, it starts to create a change. So tell her what you feel. And then when he starts to emote and share how he feels bad that he makes her feel that bad, it creates a very real moment. It's powerful. So make sure as you're trying to be a better communicator that you're not just doing it to manipulate everyone else in the world. But let's do it to understand everybody, and let's not just understand the words they're saying. Let's understand the emotion that they're sharing. Make sense? It's just connection, 101. It's how we connect to our fellow human beings here on this great big ball of mud we call Earth. Anyway, a little Coach's Corner for you. Just, you know, little hope for all of us to get a little better at, uh, at the thing that really might matter most to us, connecting to one another. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. There's more. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Hey, I don't care where you work. Uh, there's always a little surprise somewhere. In your little work area. What are you talking about? Like some People Cadbury will leave, eggs. Like, fish in the fridge or no. something? Okay. Construction workers in China were in for oh. a pleasant surprise on Christmas Day as they reportedly discovered 30 dinosaur eggs, all impeccably preserved after about 130 million years. Hmm. So not hatchable. Well, This isn't a Jurassic depends. Park, really. Were they made of amber? We don't know. I don't know. Uh, The construction workers found the eggs while digging at a site of a soon-to-be-constructed middle school. Hmm. So you now know that middle school is going to be called, like, the Raptors. If they do that there. I'm not sure what their cultural naming is. Oh, of course. You've got to have a mascot. 
Uh, State media outlets reported that the workers found oval-shaped stones while Hmm. using explosives to break the ground and clear away rock. Hmm. So they probably, before finding those, they probably found they blew up other eggs. They blew up mom is what you're saying? They scrambled the eggs. Gotcha. Yeah. They destroyed mom, but the eggs are fine. (laughs) Suspecting that they may have found something unusual but important, the workers then notified police officials who in turn alerted museum staff about the discovery. Hmm. After analyzing the eggs, museum officials determined that they were dinosaur eggs from the Cretaceous period. Oh, wow. I think that's where the dinosaur train takes part. If you watch the show Dinosaur Train really? on PBS, yeah. Maybe, dinosaur dinosaur train. maybe these Sorry. fell off the dinosaur train. Could have been. They always go on these field trips to different parts of you know yeah. the dinosaur eras. Hey, I guess. Go, go do some research. Uh-huh. See if they made their way to China Okay, and see if they happen to drop any eggs they, off of the dinosaur They train. go under the ocean. So they really? They, yeah, it's great. Wow. Yeah. So it's really a submarine. No, it's a train. It's a pretty cool train. Oh, yeah. Highly equipped. Uh, The report from the Daily Mail noted that the black debris found in between the eggs were fossilized egg shells. Wow. So some hatched. The eggs are currently being kept at a museum where experts will look further into the discovery. I saw this in a movie. Yeah. I think. Are they keeping them warm? You got to keep them warm. Yeah. Now they got some guy sitting on them at a museum. Okay. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Hey, uh, so just just know, dig deep at your workplace. You never know what you're going to find. There's always hope, friends. We will continue the fun and the learning right here on the Matt Townsend Show straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to hour number three of the program. If you happen to miss the first two hours of the show, you go back on iTunes, on TuneIn, on BYURadio.org, and you can find... One of our podcasts. We've done millions of shows. Thousands. Tens of billions of people. Sure. Yeah. I'm just making those numbers up. Yeah. It's too hard to count anymore. Yeah. It, it becomes a uh, exercise in futility. So we just don't count. Yeah. Just it's a lot. Because we know this is the hour that counts. Because this is the hour of power Oh, no, that was something else. This is the hour that we are present in, so we're going to make it the best we can. Today, by the way, uh, Terry's here. You just heard his voice. Jeffrey Liam Simpson is on sickbatical, which is uh, he's taking a sabbatical because of his sickness. And um, who better to help than Cole? Cole likes to come in and uh, run the board, you know. Like a magician. Quite Nothing honestly. I love more than to be up and at work at seven in the morning. You like that good early morning call? That's right. That says, I need your help. Okay. You're killing it too. I'll be Cole. here. We uh we love doing the show. We wish Jeff the best in his uh you know, pursuit of overcoming the flu or what ha- whatever he has. Yeah. What this has been a pretty bad flu, right? Yeah. Flu season it's, in general it's, for yeah. people. Make it, you know what? It's making a lot of people sick. You've escaped it, right? So far, knock on Formica. I have been able to avoid it, but I do take vitamin C every day. Which Uh, has, I mean, no effect on that. But if you think it does, if you think it does, good job. And I had the flu flu shot. Okay. Mm -hmm. I take lethal doses of vitamin C. (laughs) Yeah. It will kill just about anything. 
Now, is D the one that comes from the sun, right? Yes. C is... Comes from the citrus. Ah. Hmm. C is for citrus. It's good enough for me. Nice. It's good enough for me. So, um... If Yoda did the alphabet. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and what I, I like to talk about health today, because the president, again, you've got the, one of the healthiest presidents in the history of all the world. Okay. According to the president, according to his doctor, he says he's very physically fit. And ve- no, he no, said that not very physically fit. He says he's healthy. He's no, 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 no. Because he said no. he's overweight. You no, work on his weight. Work not on obese. his diet. Not no, obese. No, but we're going to go the exact words. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Because he's um, he's fit. He is fit. He will easily. Make it through this presidency and the next if well, he happens to be elected. If he never has to run more than 10 yards. See, but you keep, you're inferring he's, his, he's not healthy because he's obese. We need some physical challenges here. Obese. We need physical challenges. Donald Trump was elected to represent the average American. He's killing and it. The He's average American it, yeah. also can't run ten yards. There you go. So we're yeah. Good. What uh, the pre- what they were saying about the president is yes, he's overweight, and yes, he doesn't exercise. That's what they're going to work on this year. Mm. Is and they basically said, do you want to really? We, we want to give you a good nutrition program and a good. Uh, exercise program, the goal would be maybe 10 to 15 pounds to lose this year. That would be a good goal. And he said, well, I, I'd prefer to work on the the nutrition, I think, than the exercise. See, by the way, he's just, he's, he's just like every American. Yeah. So he's not going to be just another New Year's resolution or crowding up my gym. Well, I mean, he the is the president. entire month of January. Right. I don't know what you do to keep – to make the president do anything. But his president, I mean, his his doctor says he's got great genes. That's mm. why he's got such a – he's got a really good blood pressure. I mean, for – A 71-year-old man. For a 71-year-old man, also a, a man that likes, you know, a 2,500-calorie two, meal. Right. Regularly. And buckets of chicken. Mm. But, I mean, granted, we've seen like three photographs – yeah. With him with food and it's bad food. But I mean, what does he eat the rest of the time? Yeah, we don't see him no. with all the – I mean, he eats – he still has the – I'm sure just, the chicken court on blue that, that they have at every That may just meal. be like a wild Saturday night, whereas the rest of the week he's eating salad. That's right. See? I don't think he's a salad guy. Okay. Bad example. But you, I mean – A taco salad he's big into. <laughs> yeah, we've seen the taco salad, so that does exist. But again, that was a special occasion. Mm-hmm. Cinco de Mayo, how else do you celebrate? <laughs> he also, we, we did hear, loves the diet uh, cola beverages. Does. He has a button Apparently on his desk. 12 a day. Oof. So you think that's a lot. Maybe mix in some water? Meh. That's what the diet's for. <laughs> I, don't, I know that I don't need to drink more water until my kidneys are totally like dehydrated okay. on a, like a vine. Okay. When, when I feel I'm like blowing in the wind on the vine yeah. mix of in my some dry water. Body, yeah. Right. Then I'm like, I'm going to drink some water. All right. But I also have kidney stones. Yeah. But I don't know why. It's so weird. <laughs> anyway, um, he's healthy. So he's fit. And by the way, took a cognitive test. Cognitively, he's got the brain of a 71-year-old man. He's 30 for 30 on the test. That's great. Which is really great. So everybody needs to quit making fun of his health. He's good. Well, it wasn't everyone. The book referenced his staff questioning his mental 
cognitive abilities. Yeah. That's what the book said. Well, the book was saying that, but people were also saying well before the book right, but they, that he had mental They're now issues. using the book and these quotes from his staff that yeah. kind of alluding to lack of confidence in him. I think a lot mentally. of this would change if he if he just got more hydration. <laughs> is that what it is? More water? Yeah. Okay. More water. I think that works well. Less cheeseburger. Mm. That's what mama used to what say. What if he liquefies the cheeseburger? Well, then we're talking. Then you're fine. All right. It's basically water at that point. Well, I think once it goes in, it's liquefied anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Ugh. So it all works. <sighs> I'm not that kind of doctor. Okay. <laughs> let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to today? Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen on Tuesday did not dispute that the president, President Trump suggested the U.S. should limit immigration from specific countries, telling the Senate Judiciary Committee under oath that she did not hear the president say the offending remark that everyone's been wrapped up in, yeah. in the last seems like a week. Nielsen was present along with seven lawmakers for a closed-door meeting on immigration policy last Thursday. The conversation was very impassioned. I don't dispute that the president was using tough language. Others in the room were also using tough language, uh, Nielsen said. Senator Tom Cotton and uh, Senator uh, David Perdue of uh, Georgia denied that Trump made the remark about non-white immigrants, while Senators Dick Durbin and Lindsey Graham have backed up the initial reporting on Trump's comments. Yesterday, Dick Durbin sitting on the, yeah. the committee that was interrogating, well, <clears throat> questioning, interrogating sounds too rough, Yeah, questioning the Homeland Security Secretary. He goes, do you remember me? We were in the same room. What was said? And she said, tough language. And he goes, did I use tough language? She goes, you did not, sir. So she remembers some things, yeah. but doesn't remember others, is what he was trying to Well, yeah. That's... That's a pretty sticky situation. Now, that whole meeting was about the DACA recipients, right? right? The right. D- Department of Justice on Tuesday appealed to a, fed- a federal court ruling that had forced the Trump administration to again accept renewal applications for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA recipients. The administration, which is seeking to appeal the lower court ruling to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, announced that later this week it intends to take the rare step of seeking direct review in the Supreme Court. Oh, Wow. It defies both law and common sense for DACA, an entirely discretionary non-enforcement policy that was implemented unilaterally by the last administration after Congress rejected similar legislative proposals and court uh, courts invalidated the similar DAPA policy to somehow be mandated nationwide by a single district court in San Francisco, said Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Yeah. He's saying that it doesn't make sense that a court in San Francisco makes us do this, so they're going to go to the Supreme Court. Ooh. But, uh, Good. No, I I trust the Supreme Court. So does that sound like the DACA situation will get settled by Friday when we're going to shut the government down? Absolutely we don't have funding not. And, okay, but I do believe that uh, the, everybody's pretty smart politically enough to know that shutting down the government won't help anybody. No. So then, then you end up with a temporary deal, yeah. kicking it to the next month. That's what they'll do. And apparently, right now, the Republicans are working on that plan. Yep. But they don't necessarily have the votes to mm-hmm. get it passed and the we Democrats all, aren't going to work with them so yeah. they can't get <sighs> we all mess. do that when we're cleaning the house and we're like I don't want to do the windows I'll do that next week so negotiations concerning the, the DACA program which uh, defers de- deportation of immigrants brought to the U.S. illegally by their parents all that uh, Secretary or Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said Tuesday participants shouldn't be too worried 
deporting DACA restraints or deporting DACA registrants who are also called dreamers is not going to be a priority of the immigration and customs enforcement to prioritize their removal. Hmm. She goes, I've said that before. It's not the policy of the DHS. So she's saying that as long as the DACA recipients are properly registered and do not commit any crimes, they will remain low priority for deportation. Right. Again, these are kids that have grown up here. They're, they've gone to the schools. If you go they've... to any of the big news websites, they have a picture of a father who's been here for 30 years. He was brought here when he was 10. Uh... He has three kids. They're all of college age. He was deported back to Mexico yesterday because he is just following through with a legal action that was five, six years ago they thought was taken care of, but they discovered it and now he's being deported because he's you know part of yeah. what makes us – unsafe in this country it seemed like at one point everybody was kind of for daca i mean not everyone but the majority paul ryan was working with democrats trying to get this passed so why what's the holdup? the base doesn't like it the the base the president's the president's base doesn't they think it's amnesty also immigration and customs enforcement agents are reportedly poised to arrest more than 1,500 undocumented immigrants in the region around the Bay Area of California in a maneuver apparently intended to send a signal to sanctuary cities across the country, this according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Wow. They're sending a message. Yeah. Not keeping anyone safe, they're just going to deport a bunch of people out of San Francisco because they're a sanctuary city. Yeah, they're one of those cities. Diane Feinstein's not happy. Yeah, I bet. Uh, one in three Americans says think uh, President Trump aced his first year. One in three Americans yeah. said he aced it. Okay. And also, one in three Americans think he failed. What is the other one in three? They're, uh, they're, they're not thinking they're much lately. So Americans are predictably polarized when it comes to President Trump's uh, success or failure rate in his first year in office. Uh, the set of uh, Politico and Morning Consult put yeah. this poll together. 34% say he should get an A or a B for the last 12 months. 35% give him an F. Yep. So evenly split. So it basically comes back to the rest of us, Yeah. the moderates, to have to clear this mess up. <laughs> Good. Good, as it should be. And finally. Yes. You can use this for your uh, date night coming up. Oh, cool. Yeah. Always looking for content for you. Always need content for the day. We've heard of these um, sort of activity centers for adults. I'm not sure what to call them. You have like um, <laughs> there's there's like there's places where you go and you get your chicken wings and you can go play video games yeah. and those types of uh, establishments. You can watch sports and that kind of right. thing. Well, there's other establishments now where we've talked about it where you go and you can throw axes. Hmm. Now hold on. So. You, like, take a date, and yeah. she's like, so what are we doing tonight? You're like, well, we're going to throw some axes. Yeah. Oh, Is this before be... or after the pizza, though? Well, yeah, you can get pizza. There's okay. some food. You have office parties. Mm-hmm. Tell me alcohol's not served there. There's alcohol served there. Uh, it, it's regulated. People are there and watching. And, yeah, But right. they have, like, you know, wood logs at the end, and you just get up there, and you throw axes at it, and people find it very enjoying. So people have axes in their hands. So they eat a greasy cheeseburger. Yeah. Then they're going to go grab an axe. 
and toss it around. Well, so a, a I, go ahead. I've, I've been bowling with certain yeah, yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen greasy fingers on, have a, yeah. on, on a bowling ball and have it fly backwards oh, yeah, yeah, towards yeah. the people that are not in the range of yeah, yeah, where yeah. the ball should be going. Yeah, you you probably ought there. not do the axe And now throwing. I'm picturing an axe yeah. in the same context. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- what they're finding um, is, is very popular are divorce parties. Oh, so when you get divorced, you have a little celebration with your friends. Yeah, but can, just let me tell you, as a past divorce mediator, I wouldn't give an axe to a divorcing couple ever. Yeah. So what they're saying is, instead of going, say, out drinking or something to celebrate, <laughs> you go do this activity. Yeah. And you can bring a picture of your ex. Oh. Put boy. them on the target, and you throw axes at your ex. Uh, so it says, once you've gathered your support squad... What are you doing, Dad? Just throwing axes at your mom. Your party shares two axe-throwing lanes, kind of like bowling, receiving around 25 minutes of personalized coaching on both a 2.5-pound and a 5-pound axe. Holy cow. Then the tournament part of the party kicks off, and each person takes around 40 throws to see who's crowned the axe-throwing champ of your group. You'll need to book a group fees, and there's all the stuff with the place where you do this. But they said that's their most popular sort of organized party. There's business, really? there's birthday, you know, those uh-huh. types of things. Divorce parties. So, I mean, boy. So it's kind of like a um, what are they, a bachelor's party, but after... When you're bachelor's again. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah, then you have like the bachelor or maybe even a bride's party or whatever. Wow. So, um, but who do you think's better at hitting the target, men or women? Oh, women for sure. And the guy says women because they listen to the coaches. Men come in, go rah rah. I don't need instruction. <laughs> I'm a big an man. <laughs> and they can't do it. But the women are. Yeah. So it says according to uh, this establishment, women account for a majority of their clientele at sixty percent. Really. Yeah. Well, see, they might be the ones that will go out and celebrate. It seems like I don't know. If, uh, do a lot of guys go out and celebrate after? A, I'm not sure. The research actually shows that men tend to to be they tend to be hit harder by the news of the divorce, mm. but they recover faster. Okay. So women generally, it seems like, have been planning for it for years because they've seen it coming. So when he finally hears the news, and I've seen it, a lot of the times they'll come to my office like, "What?" What happened? It's not that big of a deal. Right. And then they're divorcing, but um, you all of a sudden, they tend to recover pretty quickly. Hmm. But I don't see a bunch of men going out to throw axes. No. They'd probably go do other things. Shoot stuff? Darts. Darts? Yeah. That That's weird. Yeah. But apparently it's it's a thing, and uh, they're having parties. We're going to throw axes. Hey, bring a picture of your ex. Yeah. This is is this in any way healthy, no, Doctor? I don't think so. That's really my my question is is this a good way to cope with no. that sort of a life changing? I mean, moment? you need a hobby. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it probably ought not include sharp things. Okay. And you really shouldn't be throwing them at another human, hmm. at, or even the image of another human. That seems. What about like a silhouette? It seems like you're missing the point of the the problem of the divorce. Well, if you're, the not, if you're not, the you're not very good at the axe, you would miss the point. So, yeah, yeah. that's where the term battle axe. Ooh, yeah, and she's got an axe to grind. Maybe what would be better is if she just went out and sharpened the axe. Okay, grind it. Maybe a service project of some kind. Yeah, give some service. Serve and sharpen the, poor, the axe. Yeah, maybe okay. go serve dinner. <laughs> To the poor, 
chop some wood. Use the axe to chop some wood for people that right. still need, uh, you know, have a wood burning stove. Just thought maybe that might be a cathartic way of dealing with a divorce. I. You wouldn't recommend it. I don't think so. Okay. I also wouldn't recommend guns shooting. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a funny story for your date night, though? Yeah, it may have made it. A little bit of laughter. That may have made the date night. Okay. Yeah, but it's kind of cringing. It makes me cringe. Well, you could you could share that story and say this is a bad example. What we're going to teach yeah. you tonight are some tools. A lot of times, what I try to skills. do, I try to teach the good examples. Yeah, yeah, not you, the bad. Examples. Well, if you share the bad and then it's say my strategy. my stuff's better, start with the joke. That's what they always say, right? <laughs> so this is people would laugh when they say they put the picture of their their ex up there and. Yeah. Throw an axe at it. People think that was funny. No? Yeah, in therapy, like you're not that bad yet. Yeah, I mean, look, you, think, wanna... you guys could get this. You could get this yeah. messed up. Yeah, yeah. There's just some. I think maybe there's something there you can work with. Ah, I'll I'll take it. I'll take it into consideration. I I might just go with what I was going to see. With. I don't think he's going to do that. So, well, if you came to the date night, you're invited. But I get sort of the date night here. Yeah, but you've not. No, you really don't. I feel like I do. Nah, I feel like I get nerd. enough. I feel like I'm full of all sorts of like no. relationship advice no. and ideas. No, and you won't. You're constantly coaching. It's great. You won't believe. It's, I'm a totally different guy, and I yeah. wear leather, so it's all good. Okay, there's some other reasons why. And then you do it on like a Saturday. Saturday night. Saturday's kind of my night. It's always about you. It's always about you. <sighs> I'm thinking you ought to do it for the misses. Well, I mean, she calls begging for tickets and I'm like, yeah. I, I try to get him to go, but he won't go. And she's right. like, I know he's just way too into throwing axes. I don't know. We're so busy. Yeah. So many things going on. Actually, the funny thing about that is you're not. You've got nothing going on this Saturday or for the next six I'll, I'll have to see what I have to watch on Netflix, see if I have any conflicts. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, you'll see me one day or another. One, one time you're just you're going to have to come see me. Just hope it's not too late. <sighs> do what I can, folks. I do what I can to help uh, help my coworkers here. We will continue the journey straight ahead. Uh, guess who's coming? Dr. Paul Jenkins will be joining us. And we're going to uh, just sup from his wisdom and just take it all in. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We're back, folks, and who better to educate us than Dr. Paul Jenkins. He is a clinical psychologist, got his degrees here from Brigham Young University, and uh, is a speaker, has a wonderful broadcast, Live on Purpose podcast, and um, he's the shrink who expands your life. You know it. (laughs) Today you're going to talk to us about how to get uncomfortable. You think we need to be spend more time in our... In our uncomfortable places. Well. Out of our comfort zone. That doesn't sound very good, does it? No, it sounds horrible. In fact, we avoid that naturally. Yeah, why? Right? why? It's like our brain is wired to, in order to keep us safe, it's yeah. telling us, hey, if that's not comfortable, that's dangerous. Stay away from that. Yeah. So we have a natural resistance to it. But it seems like your brain might be onto something. Well, everything you want that you don't currently have is outside of your comfort zone. Everything I want that I don't currently have is outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, everything that's like worth wanting or like, but like chocolate cake, I want it. Well, but I don't have it. But I could get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be real comfortable with it. But yeah, so we're talking about test, that though. stuff that yeah. you've told yourself, oh, I want to do that. I, yeah. it, it's an aspiration, those goals, those a desire, yeah. a, a goal or a dream. Yeah. And here we are at the first of the year where people set all of their goals. Yeah, you know, the, well, yeah. why haven't they done it already? Well, well, it's hard. It's hard. You know, which is part of the definition of discomfort. You want us to do, do what's hard um, that's good for us. Well, what if you did? Yeah. You know? And I've got a little brain hack for you today, too. What? Because sometimes... Is it going to hurt? Well, and I guess this ties into getting out of your comfort zone, too, because uh, there's this dialogue that goes on in your mind. And Matt, you know about the subconscious. Yeah, yeah. There's these two parts of our mind. If you think of it as the conscious and the subconscious... Subconscious is below your awareness. Sub means below, like subway or submarine. And conscious means awareness. So it's down here below your awareness. Well, there are stories going on in your subconscious about whether you can or can't do something. Yeah, are you good enough at this? Whether you've got what it takes. Yeah. Okay. And so if you if you affirm, you've heard about affirmations. Yeah. This is old school. Right. Uh, positive affirmations. You know, we've heard about those for years. Well, on my YouTube channel... I I interviewed uh, Brett Williams, who wrote the book, You Can Be Right or You Can Be Married, (laughs) which is kind of a fun other conversation we could have. But Brett was saying, you know the problem with affirmations? They don't work. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, where are we going to go with this episode then? Yeah. Okay, I guess we're done. But the thing is, you know, when you say, oh, I can do that, but your subconscious has this belief that you can't? Yeah. As soon as you affirm, hey, I can do this, you've just picked a fight with your subconscious. Right. Then it's – but we don't even notice it sometimes. Right, because it's subconscious, yeah. but it manifests as anxiety. Mm-hmm. comes out some other way. Some kind of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Right? You see, we're getting and back And then we into... slow down. We don't do it. So we, we, so we, we say retreat. we want something, but we say we want to get healthy, but we never yeah. exercise. Well, and then we'll retreat into our comfort zone. We'll go right back to what it is that we are used to doing, what yeah. we've trained, taught, and educated our brain to do in the past. And we stay stuck. Yeah. You've probably heard this in your office. The most common lament that I hear, why do I do what I do when I know what I know? Yeah. Yeah. Because you know. That yep. it would be good for you, you know, to get outside of your comfort zone and go do that thing. Is is this? Uh, I mean, is is are there just some people that just naturally like pushing their comfort zone? I mean, I I, I think of certain. There's just certain kids that if you tell them not to climb the fence, they're just going to climb the fence. They're constantly mm. testing. Yeah, but that's more about boundaries. mom's comfort zone. Their extremes, yeah. But so, but it's like, are there some people that just are really good at pushing their envelope? I think they have a different story. Yeah. Okay. So they see it as an adventure instead of a gut wrencher. That's good. Yeah. So um, how we define it makes a difference, and this gets back to those subconscious stories that we have. So uh, the brain hack that that yeah. Brett shared with me on the YouTube visit was about well, let's change the affirmation into a consideration. A consideration. So whatever it is, like when you tell yourself, 
I'm fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you just picked a fight with your subconscious because yeah. your subconscious is like, you wish. Whatever. Right? Right. And you look in the mirror and you're like, ah, it doesn't look fit and healthy to me. <laughs> um, so Brett suggested, well, let's turn it into a consideration instead. And just, there's kind of a four-part like yeah. four process, and this helps you get out of your comfort zone. Okay. So instead of saying, I am fit and healthy, which you're fighting against, you say, what if I were oh, interesting. fit and healthy? Now, do you notice the difference in energy with that? Yeah. So what you've done is just opened a door, a possibility. You're not saying that you are. You're right. saying, what if, what if I, yeah. I were... And then your subconscious is chill. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, and it's not fighting you because you're not going up against that. And it creates hope. It creates opportunity. It's something that you can explore. Simply opens the door. That's neat. Okay. So, and you don't get seized with the anxiety because you're not taking a stand. Yeah. And then the next step of that, and you can do this on a daily basis. Let's say you take four days to consider. Something. Yeah. Okay. So, so day one, it's, it's simply, you know, what if I were? And then you move into day two, and we're going to get into your senses a little bit. Yeah. So, so the, the next step of this consideration process is if that were true, that I were fit and healthy, what would that look like? Hmm. And you get into your head a little bit on this one. The, the, the visual, can I picture this? Yeah. Now, this is kind of a sneaky strategy, Matt, because to create something, you have to first imagine it. it. Yeah, yeah. You got to visualize. You got to bring it up and create it spiritually, mentally, psychologically. And our imagination is the way we do that. So this step is simply, well, if it were true. I'm not saying that it is. Yeah, yeah. Right? But if it were true, what would that look like? What would that like? look like? And be like and feel like and smell like and taste like and experience. Yeah, use your senses and yeah. start to connect with this. Now, uh, you mentioned one that I'm going to put into the next step because okay. we want – the subconscious is really programmed through emotion. Yeah. Okay, things that you feel strongly. Whether it's positive or negative, it gets driven home into the subconscious. So the next step is, well, if it were true that I am fit and healthy – how would I feel? That'd be cool. And this is where we connect to the emotional part. You think about your comfort zone. The primary emotion that we feel is fear, apprehension. We're worried about it, right? Right. Because it's like, oh, that's going to be painful, difficult, uncomfortable yeah. by definition. So in the consideration process, we're simply saying, well, if it were true of me, how would I feel? I'm not saying that it is. Yeah, I'm yeah. Just, but if it were, I would feel like a million bucks. I would, I'd feel man, energy. I would feel confident. Yeah. I would feel so energetic and awesome. Yeah. That would just be so cool. I would feel spandex is for me because I'm fit and trim. There you go. More spandex. That's right. That's, that may not be good. So the fourth step, now you've got it into your head. You've got it into your heart. And all we're doing is opening doors, see? We're not fighting with our subconscious. We're yeah. not picking a fight. We're simply considering it, right? Yeah. And we're connecting at an intellectual and, sen- and sensory level mm-hmm. and then at an emotional feeling level. We got it into our head. We got it into our heart. Now we're going to get it into our shoes so it'll walk around in our life. Yeah. Okay. So this is the behavioral step. 
if this were true, how would I show up? And, and then make it present, too. If this were true, how would I show up today? What would I do differently? What would my behaviors be? Yeah. And so we're translating that visualization and the emotion of it into some behavior. That's good. And that's when it starts to change us. Now, by this time, here's what's happening in the background. Your comfort zone that used to be this tight little ball, yeah. and I'm not going to leave, this is home, this is safe, right? And you start to push out of it, and your subconscious slaps you down and says, get back in there. Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking? In, in the background, during this consideration process, we have just stretched that thing. Yeah. Okay? So it's a little bigger. Yeah. Something that was fearful before is like a possibility for you now. So it's it's a gentle... I'm not even saying let's get outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Because who's going to do that? Yeah, that's nuts. They're going to fire me. <laughs> They're like, can I get another shrink? Right. What I'm saying is let's stretch your comfort zone. Just make it bigger. And then you're not even getting outside of it. You're sim- You're stretching it. Okay, so you're making it bigger. And now something that was just outside of your comfort zone before yeah, is really a true consideration for you. Well, we've seen that, right? Yeah. We've seen that growing up. How many times did oh, you yeah. think, oh, I, there's no way I could drive all the way to California? In, in the last hour, you were having a conversation about public speaking. I'm heading up to the National Speakers Association yeah, meeting yeah. this afternoon. Yep. And – this is one of the, the commonly feared things. So that's outside of most people's comfort zones. Right. You can use this consideration process. What if I were a confident public speaker? What would that do for you? That's cool. And really, honestly, I think there are very few things you could do that would generally improve your life uh, as fast as getting comfortable with public speaking. And especially if it, you're not. Right. You know what I mean? There's, th- there's those that are pretty good at it or whatever, but then there's those that are terrified by it. And there's weirdos like you and me oh, that love it. I love it. I do too. It's addictive. It kind of is. It really is. <laughs> but to, to, really to go is. through that consideration process, you can stretch your comfort zone yeah. to where something that you wouldn't have even considered before is now well within the realm of consideration for you. You just stretched your comfort zone. But – and. I guess it doesn't happen. You you have to stretch it. You have to. It's like an intentional. It's an intentional act. process. Yeah. Yes, it's kind of like live on purpose. Don't you think it is? It's kind of like <laughs> your your radio show, live on purpose. But it almost seems like if you if you don't want to stretch yourself, life is going to stretch you one way or another. There's going to be stretching done. Oh, stuff happens, you know. And so, no matter, it might be better to choose it to to make it an elective. Than something that's like forced on you. You know, the, the common belief that's behind every fear what? is I can't handle it. Yeah. No, you've, you make a great point about this that. What if? You, what if? I could handle it. Yeah. See, we're gonna just, just take it right back to that. We're just going to stretch that. What if I could handle it? How, what would that look like? How would I feel? You always How talk about it. Today? it you're, you can ha- take the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Mm-hmm. You would handle it. Yeah, you would handle it. Oh my gosh! After twenty-three years of clinical practice, you can't shock me. No, you've seen some. Oh yeah, we hear goofy stuff. Yeah, 
in our industry. Totally. And I encounter people every day who have handled things that they might have thought were unthinkable before. Right, right. But they've handled it. And and some of it's just – and then it's, it seems like it's um, – what's the word? It's cumulative where mm-hmm. it makes it so you can handle the next thing better. Well, you've stretched your – the next thing easier. Comfort zone, your belief system about yeah. – what you can handle, what what you're capable of. Right. And life teaches you these things. You're right. It's cool. You'd, so if you intentionally stretch that, you know, open up some considerations of things that you didn't even think were possible, then you're putting yourself in position so that when stuff happens, and it will, yeah, yeah, you've got a whole new belief system and you're going to roll with it and it will continue to expand and stretch from there. Yeah. See – Kind of cool, huh? It's, it's like you. It's like you've worked on this. Thought about it a little bit. Is this what you do on your uh, on your on purpose radio and your video series on YouTube? The you know the YouTube. This is a big stretch for me. Is it? Oh yeah, five videos a week, ten to fifteen oh, I know. minutes. That's incredible. And I'm just taking on principles. Yep. Okay, the radio show is an interview. That's cake. That's easy. I mean, you get to have a conversation yeah. like this. That's easy. But these principles, I'm I'm summarizing them in these tight little 10 to 15-minute videos, and we're putting out five a week. That's ah, a lot of work. I, and you know what, Matt? Before I started, I didn't think I could do that. Now you're doing it. But uh, here I am. A you piece know? of cake. I stretched my comfort zone. Yeah. And so now I'm in a place that has more freedom than what I was in before. Yeah, because that's what happens when you stretch your comfort zone. And and you're a you. I'm assuming now you can look at the future and think, hmm, I could do that. Other things become possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's growth. That's just healthy. Yeah. And that's a life that is exciting and energized and and full of joy. You know, if, cool. if we stay trapped in that comfort zone, it tends to feel oppressive. Yeah. It's like I'm stuck. That's one of the most common phrases I hear from people who are feeling like they can't yep. do something bigger or or more bold than what they've been doing. That's cool. But they're capable of it. Uh, Dr. Paul Jenkins is his name. And uh, changing your life is his game. Go to his website, drpauljenkins.com, where you'll find out more about his book, uh, Pathological Positivity, his blog, everything. He's got it all going there. Plus, you can go to YouTube and look up Live On Purpose TV. Live On Purpose TV and get literally a new uh, 10, 15 minute video every day. Yeah, for free. For free. Go for the rest of your life. Subscribe and share. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate you. Thank good you. stuff. Good stuff. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. Our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Welcome back, friends. It's time to go visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation and find out what they're preparing for their show at the top of the hour. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. Hello, Gamnet. How you guys doing? We're solid. You know, we're good. <laughs> Yesterday, we didn't have a show in the morning. I know. So you did it in the afternoon. 
We did. Do you, we pref- did. Do you prefer the afternoon show or the morning show? It was a fun shake-up. Yeah. It was. And this morning I was like, ugh, the morning? <laughs> <laughs> Which was weird. That was the first time we hadn't done a kind of non-holiday I know. I, morning I thought, show ever. I was wondering what you were going to do because I don't think you had ever like not done the show, but you still did the show. You just did it later. And and uh, on Tuesdays, our re-air on TV is at uh, 5 Mountain, 7 Eastern. It's always 7 Eastern on it's BYU Radio. always there. So we were live there, and then we had uh, BYU Basketball Dave Rose live right after. So that was that was a fun uh, live Super Tuesday. You guys were busy. Plus, you had you got you received the word of the new leadership of the LDS Church, and that's always a big topic on our show. Yeah, you guys are really breaking breaking all it over down. That. We're all over. You're, okay, uh, this Analysts. is. I've got something that I do need you to break down. Stats. Okay. Did you did you see the 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 blow up with Chris Paul? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean. I thought he and Griffin were buddies. I think they are. I don't. They're they're not buddies. They were never super close in oh, L.A. Yeah. I mean, they were uh, cordial. Yeah. And obviously wanted to win and do the same things. But I don't know. That was that got out of hand in a hurry. It totally did. <laughs> that really escalated. Like that was <laughs> stupid. But then you might want to lay low for a while, Chris Paul. But then like, a, apparently Chris Paul then took a bunch of them down in a tunnel to like get— a secret tunnel a or secret something? tunnel. There's a tunnel that connects the locker room between the Clippers, the home team in the Staples Center, and the visiting team. And it's used so that guys can catch up, like so that they can just be friends yeah. and see what's going on. Oh, they'll catch up. Oh, they caught up all they right. More than that. So, so they got a little chippy. They got a little, uh, little fight on. Yeah. But tunnel. it's the NBA. No one I, actually swings. I blame a guy named Patrick Beverly. That guy just creates drama wherever he goes. Yeah. So if yeah. you don't know who he is, look him up. Patrick Beverly. Be an actor. He could be an actor, but he's he's the he's uh he he gets a little he gets in fights. He's the catalyst. Yeah. That sparks the Clippers now. Well, and Blake Griffin pointed at Mike D'Antoni, which was weird. Like yeah. like was yelling at him running down the court and then like ran into him. Weird. Like you know, don't you don't run into a coach. I know Blake Griffin's funny that way too. Speaking yeah. of drama. No, see can't we all Go just get along? Go drive your Kia, dude. Go take your Kia for a ride. Don't Go drive dis- your Kia and have fun Go being the don't. seventh seed in the playoffs. Oh, that is just the, them is fighting words right there. First, you don't mess with a man's Kia. Second, you don't tell him where he's going to rank. I'm just not okay with running into a coach. I agree. Like that's that's weird, man. Protect your seniors. This one time in an intramural BYU basketball game, the other team brought two dudes that were in suits and one had a clipboard, and they were the coaches. Oh, that's awesome, dude. It was hilarious. I should have run into them. Yeah, you should have. Should have been like, whoa. No, I've seen that in ward ball, too. Speaking of coaches, I learned something very humorous the other day. Kenyon Martin listed like the top five people that he hated competing against. Yeah. He's a former NBA player. Yeah. Who is outspoken. And volatile, and Jerry Sloan made that list. Really? Because Kenyon Martin took down Carl Malone in a game like super dirty foul, and huh. Jerry Sloan went ballistic on him. <laughs> I think it was a list of uh, respected. Like, well, he said, "I respect Jerry Sloan, yeah. but like, I I didn't want to mess with hated him. playing yeah, against five those guys. guys. Everybody hated yeah. playing against. But Jerry it, Sloan he's... is the guy that would fight you. <laughs> he would just fight you. Jerry Sloan's the crusty old man. Yeah. That you just didn't want to mess with because he was going to win that battle. Yes. Well, and he had a broken – his nose looked like it had been broken 20 times. 
Once you once once you a guy's got a nose guy. like that, you yeah. Care? Yeah. Yeah. Care. Jerry Jerry Sloan's that that John Deere toughness, yes. you know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. And he he does have a lot of John Deere. Whew. Tractors. I saw my uncle in uh, Nauvoo, Illinois. Mm. It's a place of significance to Latter-day Saints. Yes. Uh, was wearing a John Deere shirt. No, no, no. It was a Caterpillar shirt. Okay. Oh, nice. Competitor. And a guy comes up to him, to my uncle, and says, Hey, boy, this is John Deere country. He, he, he. <laughs> like, and he was serious. Like, why are you wearing that shirt here? Like, take that sissy <laughs> shirt off. I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, you, you know, it's like you don't wear an Alabama shirt no. in uh, Auburn, Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> like he's wearing a caterpillar shirt. There's there's certain protocols in John Deere territory. Yeah. There's protocols, and you you, you, you live or that die by happened. those protocols. And then Jerry Sloan broke his nose. Oh boy! Then it was all over. Hey, uh, you guys still doing your show today, yeah, though? Of course right? we are in the morning. We should have come in in the morning, done this hit, and been like, "No, we're actually not doing the show." Oh, that would have been hilarious. But you were not, were you? I was on, no, because uh, I was preempted at yeah. 9. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll seek an opportunity one day to yeah. actually do that. Next time we'll do it. Everybody loves a surprise, right, Matt? Absolutely. So today we are discussing what exactly BYU has to do from the men's basketball side to surprise all fans across BYU Sports Nation. What would qualify as a surprise? National Championship. Well, that would be more of a okay. unbelievable that, that would be a miracle. heart you know attack what? shock. Leave, leave your cougar board comments out of this. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Oh, my that, goodness. That makes sense. That the voice sense. of the Cougars, Greg Rebell, is going to join us. nba or NBA alumnus, Jeff Judkins. Sweet. He's like, with Greg us didn't as well. play in the NBA? No. No, he did not. And Kyle Collins, speaking of the NBA... Got some run on an NBA court last night. Really? Had one of the more awkward field goals that I've ever seen. Well, I've got to look that up. But it went in, Spencer. That's all that matters. Count for two points in John Deere country, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go, Matt. Sounds like a great show. Oh, yeah. We're going to have... At least mediocre. Yeah. Jerem's going to go get his teeth in, and then uh, it's all going to be good. It's all going to be good. Thanks, guys. Where's my teeth? (laughs) Where's my teeth at? Bring me my blasted teeth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so sad, but so good. Good luck, gentlemen. Knock Thank them you. dead. That's going to be a great show. Straight ahead, folks, about five minutes from now, you'll be able to just eat it all up with the good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Uh, so on the show, we've talked about so many things, uh, including throwing an axe on a date. So bring a picture of your ex, and then you can throw axes at your ex. It just doesn't feel right, Cole. So let me – even though Terry loves the idea, let me just suggest to you because you're still out in the dating world. OK. Don't do it. OK. Don't do it. Simple as that. I don't know. It's a weird date. Unless, of course, you have your own axe. BYO axe. BYO axe. To the date. A. Yeah. Bring your own axe. Bring your own axe to the X. Oh, that's so Ooh. weird. Don't do that. And, um, and hey, if somebody says, hey, let's go down in this tunnel because I've got some guys I want to beat up, don't oh. ever follow them into the tunnel. OK. It'll never turn out the way you thought. I really wanted to know if the Marriott Center's got those fancy tunnels, too. No, they too. do. They do. Yeah? There's fancy tunnels. All right. But not for fighting. Okay. Just for love. Um, not even for love, by the way. That sounds weird. Just for, you know, faster passage. That's what them tunnels are for. Hey, as you know, we always like to wrap up the show with a hero sto- story. And... Uh, 
Here's a great one for you. Danielle Sannon is a nurse and her brother, Sean Fitzpatrick, an active military member. They were the perfect people to be at the right place at the right time to save two lives. The siblings were headed back to Bush Gardens on Christmas Eve when they drove past a car that hit a concrete road installment head on. He was trapped in the car and we couldn't get to the car door open. Uh, He had blood on the left side of his head, and he was saying he couldn't breathe, Sandon said. His blood pressure was 70 over 30. His passenger crawled out the window. Fitzpatrick said he took care of her while his sister stabilized the man trapped in the vehicle. I looked at her, and if it wasn't for us, something uh, could have uh, went worse. Something could have happened to him, Fitzpatrick said. I learned a lot. I learned how to be calm. The military teaches a lot of these things, but I never had to do it in a situation like this. Both Sandon and Fitzpatrick are selfless and are now being uh, called heroes. She is a, Sandon is a single mom who's worked for a hospital for 11 years. And because of what she did, she literally is now being called the hero there in Florida. I think my sister is definitely a hero every day that she works. She might not think so, but every day that she is able to save a life, that's a hero in and of itself. So thank you, Danielle Sandin and Sean Fitzpatrick, for doing your work. And also, more importantly, probably for serving our country. We couldn't do it without great people like you. And every one of us could step up and be a hero for somebody out there. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.